In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1821 to 1834. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1821 The Archivist, written by Reddit Aggie The Archivist was very old. He lost count of other years long ago, but he was reasonably sure that he was at near seven digits. He didn't look old. He didn't feel old. Sam, the immortal, he called himself. Between the longevity treatment and nanobiotic safeguards roaming through his body, he was technically an eternal 37. He'd thought about that hard at the time. He'd felt that it was a perfect age. Old enough to be respected, but not so old, he'd be losing his hair or going grey. In retrospect, he'd have chosen 27. He'd thought about it for a millennia. He'd be old enough to do what he wanted, and young enough to not care about the consequences. Missed opportunity, Sam scolded himself. The archivist sighed as he surveyed the entrance to the vault. Behind those doors was a storehouse of knowledge so vast, even he hadn't seen it all. Orbital sensors had picked up an approaching craft and alerted him. Sam didn't recognize the ship, though. Interesting, he thought, looking at the design. Something new. Sam took his position next to the vault door and waited whatever guests would be joining. He'd have to check his book later, but he'd be around 500 years since someone had dropped by. The ground shook. Must be a big ship, Sam thought to himself. Perhaps it's someone important, he mused. Far more likely it's only someone who only thinks they are important, he decided. The doors burst open to the foyer, and a 50-foot-tall mechanical spider octopus main battle tank rushed into the space. I am the Singularity, it announced through speakers so loud that the room shook and the dust bunnies in the corner danced. I am the world breaker, the explorer, and the end of all things. All who stand before me shall despair. Sam waited for the monologue to reach a natural break, then interjected. Hi, uh, the Singularity. No, that's weird. Mind if I call you Sing? It'll be a lot easier if we're going to be spending time together. Fool! The Singularity screamed wrapping a tentacle around Sam and lifting him halfway up to the wall, pressing its face near his own. Do you not recognize your doom? I am here to absorb all the knowledge of this place. So, uh, I am sensing that we're not okay with Sing. Then okay, uh, no, no problem, Sam replied. Great then, where would you like to get started? You don't strike me as the summer beach book kind of intelligence. Perhaps something from our galactic conflict section. Maybe something from the genocide subcategory. That seems more your speed. You misunderstand, foolish mortal. The singularity screamed. I am here to learn everything you know. Right, Sam said. Well, um, I mean, it'll take a while, but that's what I'd here for. Listen, do you mind putting me down? Happy to help you find what you're looking for in the card catalog. But, uh, you're wrinkling the jacket. The singularity paused in its rant and closely examined the archivist. He wasn't howling in terror. He wasn't scared. He didn't seem concerned. He even sounded like he may be willing to help. Something was off here. The singularity put down gently and backed away a few steps. 
Who are you? He asked Sam. I am the archivist, Sam said. It is my job to help you find what you are looking for here. I must say, it's been a long time since we've had any rogue AI visit. I'll have to check my book, but I think it's been at least 10,000 years. Others have been here before me, the singularity asked. Oh, uh, sure, Sam replied. Lots, give me a second uh, to look at the signing book. Sam made his way to the desk on the far wall and picked up the ledger, wiping off a layer of dust. He opened it and began flipping pages, talking to himself as he did so. Yep, uh, last visitor about 500 years ago. <laughs> last rogue AI. He flipped a few more pages. Uh, 10,103 years ago. I was close, actually. It doesn't look like he signed out yet. He may still be down there somewhere. The singularity took another step back. This was not at all what he had expected. You've captured an AI, came the wary question. Captured? Sam asked. No, unless dialects have changed materially. That carries a fairly negative connotation. AIs sometimes hear about us show up with some variation of your I'm the immortal mechanical terror who never sleeps, yada, yada, yada. And then typically get distracted inside the vault. There are three others like you shuffling about in there now, if uh, memory serves right. But they seem to have a place pretty well figured out now. At least, they haven't asked for help in a while now. Sam paused. Maybe I should check in on that. He shook his head and flipped the book back to the current ledger page, and wrote in the singularity's name in the next visitor's slot. Okay, Sam started. Purpose of visit. Right, oh, sorry, you already said that. Sam began filling in the next blank, talking to himself as he did so. Absorb all knowledge and learn everything. He closed the book and said, Okay, got it, thanks. Sam walked back around the desk to stand in front of the singularity, who took another step back. Well, Sam began, just a few things to get started. First, uh, the vault is big. Sam began. I'm sure you've heard that then rumors that led you here, right? The singularity recaptured some of its bluster and shouted, Yes! The entirety of the planet hollowed out to store the knowledge of the once great empire. Sam paused and snickered. Well, uh, sure, he muttered. When it was just getting started, yeah, it was an Acronian empire's repository of all knowledge. Most of the planet's interior houses their physical media, you know, books, scrolls, tablets, that sort of thing. That takes a lot of space, you know. Digital assets, crystal data structures, all the atomic and subatomic databases are all stored in levels 37,000 to 53,000. And some of our older volumes have been moved into dimensional vaults. The singularity asked. Uh, dimensional vaults? Sam nodded. Oh, yes. Far too much was collected from various civilizations over the years to fit inside one planet. So... If you find something you want in the catalog, then the call numbers start with MDV and a number. Recognize that it's in one of the multidimensional vaults. Bring me the call number and I'll help you to the right portal and show you how to configure it. I'll also tell you about the atmospheric conditions and power availability in that dimension. Some of them can be quite hostile to certain forms of light, even of artificial. So I'd encourage you to ask. There are no stupid questions, only stupid dead people. You think I need assistance? The singularity boomed. I've conquered thousands of worlds. Well, uh, good for you, 
Sam encouraged. That's very nice, sir. Just starting out, are you? Well, don't worry. You'll find some very helpful tips in here that should have you conquering galaxies in no time. The singularity was at a loss for words. This was not going as it had planned. It decided to try a drift track and asked, What do you have on phased array gravetic pulse cannons? Sam thought for a moment, cocking his head to the side. Mmm, he mused. Well, uh, if memory serves, those became obsolete with the invention of the fractal singularity torpedoes. But then those are soon obsolete also. If you really want to find out about the cannons, we'll have to consult the coward catalogue. But I'm going to guess that those are in MDV 17 or 22. Gravity in those dimensions is visible, and those life forms invented gravetic weaponry before pointy sticks. Well, but we'll confirm it. Sam pressed a button on each wrist, and the vault door swung open, revealing a space inside so large that to this day it still made his head hurt to look at it. The singularity winced also. Sam waved the singularity to follow. You are too big for the tube or lift, so we'll have to walk to the second records room. It's only about two days from here. Follow me and don't worry about it. If this or any galaxy ever knew it, we probably have a copy of it here. If you can't find it, ask. Sam stopped and spun back around so quickly. The singularity took a couple steps back. Sam raised his hand and pointed a finger at the singularity and sternly saying, Oh, and by the way, there are disclaimers on the doors, but to level set, you should know that the use of any and all weapons designed sourcing from a race of beings known as the humans from MDV-25 have been classified as war crimes across all dimensions, space and time. If you have to conquer a galaxy, use something else. Trust me, you do not want that kind of attention. Now, um, follow me, Sam said enthusiastically and set off towards the nearest records room. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1822. The Last Human, written by Slow AD 12345. Written by Slow AD 2584. The human wakes up. He is confused. His jaw aches, like it's been in a weird position for far too long. He stumbles out of the device that surrounded him and looked around. His memories were coming back to him slowly. Who was he? Where was he? Why was this particular thing going on with him around him? He knew it had to make sense somehow. He just had to remember. His name slowly came back to him. His name was his own. Not important for the story, as will be evident later. He was on a starship in space. The name of the ship escaped him, but he knew that he was a crewman of the ship. He was... He was... Oh, he was the ship's janitor. Well, that was depressing. The ship was very quiet. He remembered that wasn't usually the case. It was weird. He started to explore the room he was in, looking for hints about where, who I, who, and how. You know, the usual W's. He came to find that he was on the ship's brig. He had emerged from a cryostasis pod, frozen in his time of sentence for, uh, whatever he had done. He couldn't recall. Something to do with a, uh, cat? Nah, that doesn't make any sense. But for whatever reason, he just now emerged from his cryopod. But where were the guards? So, uh, was he supposed to, um, j just get dressed and, uh, see himself out? Uh, okay then. 
One good thing about being a ship's janitor is he had a key to every space on the ship. As he walked around, he found nobody anywhere. The more he explored, the more he grew alarmed, and was soon racing down the corridors, checking higher and higher clearance rooms. Nobody. He finally stopped at the captain's quarters, fearing the worst. Maybe there would at least be an answer. There was no one inside. There was an odd dusting on the furniture, a light film covering everything. Was it... dust? No. That was very unlikely. As a janitor, he was very familiar with the ship's anti-dust filters and static eliminators. For it to get this bad, it would mean that... A flickering light caught his eye. From the captain's desk. Of course, the ship's computer. He hurried to the desk display, faintly hollow lit with the glass on the desk surface. He wiped the dust away from the display, leaving a thick film on his hand. Uh, computer, uh, respond, please. The computer's voice, remembered as a slightly British female contralto, was haggard, hoarse, distorted with feedback, frizzled thingies. He was a gentleman. He didn't know any of the technical stuff, but he knew the computer sounded in very bad shape. I'm so sorry, the distorted voice said, barely understandable. There was no the option. Where is everybody? What happened? I'm a rapist. Right. Yeah, iron. Radiation? But like nuclear or something. Not really all that bad. Mo. M much worse. So, where are the crew? Where are we? What's going on? No time. Companion upload almost complete. Final act. Huh? What does any of that mean? Can you answer my questions more simply? Um, perhaps I can, said a nasally, slightly annoying voice from right behind him. He jumped in surprise, wheeling around to find the ship's hologram standing there. It was clearly a hologram, slightly see-through. He waved his hands through the hologram's chest. Please don't do that. As I say, I've known for you for four seconds and you already made me uncomfortable. We'll have to work on this. Who are you supposed to be? He said with equal measure of alarm, fear, and curiosity. The hologram pinched the bridge of its nose. I, unfortunately, am required to be your companion for the rest of your life. The hologram looked sadly down at his fading command desk computer screen. It was her last act, her last kindness for you. But, but why did it have to be me? This is seriously gonna suck. He crossed his arms across his chest, but Reddy decided that he really did not like this hologram very much. Well, you said you could simplify things. That means you know some answers. The hologram raised an eyebrow and managed to look down on him, even though being no taller. Yes, sir. I suppose this is my first duty. It is to explain your sad, sorry state. Well, here it is. Embrace yourself. You are the last human. No, literally... The date is what you would call the year 300 billion 2022. Every other human is quite literally long gone. In fact, most of the prime sequence stars have all burned out and are gone from the universe. Only black holes and the many red dwarfs remain. He collapsed to the floor in shock. Really? Wished you would have sugarcoated it a bit. You jerk, he said, bending ill to his stomach. But how did I... Yeah, you were in cryo when the freak gamma ray burst slammed into our hull. 
saturating the entire ship in its titanic radiation. The crew all dead immediately. All but you. Your cryopod was shielded with stasis in just the fortunate way to forestall the radiation getting to you. Wait. I don't understand. If everyone died on the spot then when... The hologram sneered and gestured as if wiping dust from its hands. Over time they just dissolved to dust. It hasn't really been a very long time. He stood up in instant revulsion, hurriedly trying to get all the dust on him off. It was impossible. The hologram simply watched with a smug little grin, bravely flicking non-existent dust off of its holographic uniform. He definitely hated the hologram, no doubt about it. Boy, you're just a freaking ray of sunshine, aren't you? Was that a hateful hollow discrimination remark, you know? Well, now that you mention it, it might have been, he said with a smile, happy to see this hologram was sentient enough to have feelings that could be trampled on a bit. That was kind of a good thing in his darkening situation. Right, so it's just me, radiated chip, am I going to die from radiation now? The hologram sighed and again pinched the bridge of his nose. No, the radiation has faded away by now. That was why you weren't released from cryostasis. The computer waited until the ship was safe to revive you. Do you even know what the year 300 billion actually means? Uh, sure I do. It's a long time, uh, whatever. So, I'm the only one. Does the ship work? Can we go somewhere? The hologram looked pained as if it was explaining things for the fifth time to a child. You are the only one. No, the ship was fried from the burst. And besides, there is really nowhere to even go anymore. The Milky Way, gone. Even the milk dromedar is gone. The nearest thing is the red dwarf 86 light years away. But we can't move. We are a derelict in space. Mofak, then just what? What are we supposed to do? Don't worry, you twat. There is enough food and drink on board to feed you like a king for the rest of your life. That's not exactly what I'm concerned about with at the moment. You inconsiderate talking billboard ad. Well, no, that was definitely a hateful discriminatory remark. Yeah, well... Who are you going to complain to? What group of beings am I offending? It's just you and me out here, buddy. And I wanted to offend you. Hmm, I guess... Uh, I, I guess... I never thought about it that way. I... Well... You have a very strange perspective on things. Call it my way of coping with all of this. But what are you all about, anyway? Why are you uh, like this? I've never met a self-aware kind of hologram before. The hologram looked thoughtful. The ship said, well, I don't really agree with it, but it was something like you needed to not be alone for the rest of your life. You needed a companion. I was chosen and designed to keep you constantly slightly pissed off at me, for lack of better words, as the only means to ensure that you will not fall to insanity as the decades roll on. Oh, stop it. You're making that up. Afraid not. Nope. A target for your frustrations and a sounding board for your thoughts. With the near constant ribbing, it's just what the doctor ordered for sad cases like you. I'm afraid. Like I said, this is going to suck for me. And you should be thankful. The ship has spent a good hundred billion years just getting my hollow persistence field to work outside of her processes. Another hundred was spent with my sentience. All that time she could have been working to save herself, but no. She wanted you to not suffer instead. Forstalling any repairs on herself to ensure the life support and living spaces were repaired by the time of your revival. Uh, well, uh, can't really complain after you've said all of that. So, if you stuck with me, then I'm stuck with you. At least we have each other still. 
here at the end. The hologram looked touched for a brief moment before snapping its uniform taut and saying, First thing we need you to do is to get you properly dressed and shaped, ship shape as it were. Just because the universe died and fell to its decrepitude doesn't mean you get to be so on the ship if I have to look at your meaty face forever. Hey, off to the showers with you. You stink, by the way. By the time you come out, you better be clean-shaven, and if passing my inspection, the galley autocock may have a captain's steak dinner waiting for you. Well, uh, now, um, can't say no to that. And the stage is set for a many sitcom-like shenanigans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1823. Story number one. How the human's fire is fueled. Written by Cal Bynes. They survive. Tied to the burning pyre of entropy. And somehow, while their body and minds burn, they live. Nobody truly understands the humans, and while I might be the closest, I sure don't either. Flipping the galaxy on its head in one fell swoop, I'm one of the ones who is assigned to figure out the question of how. How these humans do all they do. Here, in my observations... Here's how the fire of a human is fueled. My first experience was in battle. Not exactly my choice in this instance. It's how I ended up in this job, however. The planet just had stopped being assaulted with heavy orbitals, and their infantry was coming to begin cleaning us up. It was a small colony world. We knew we wouldn't be saved. We also knew that the quals didn't often take prisoner, and those that day didn't weren't exactly treated well. Then a bright flash through the skies as a small ships jumped nearly into the atmosphere, careening into the ground, small boxes that came flying from them. Dust springing up at front of our position as one cracked open, four humans peeping out. Reinforcements have arrived! Who's in charge here? The lead human said. You're insane. Our government can't spare any ships to you. You've just signed your own death, I said as I walked up to her. That's when I saw it. Something behind her eyes, a raging inferno barely contained, busting at the edges of her eyes as she looked back at me. Your government can't, she said, a grin appearing on her face. We fought with them for the next four rotations. They were machines, some of them almost literally. One, losing their leg to an anti-tank explosive launcher. They just kept going, every injury, every bit of hope, every soldier that fell. It was like it was absorbed into them. Continuing on, dragging through the mud that felt like concrete. Concrete that had been hit enough to make it feel like mud. Eventually, we reached the base they had made, filled with most of our people that were on the planet. They all had that same fire to them, that unending energy. Once we had gotten there, I asked that soldier, the one that first found me and my men, how? Aisha... How in the hell do you humans do it? I read your biological reports. They're above average, but not this, I said, gesturing all around to the base. She sat down next to me for a moment before answering. For us, sir, uh, it's not about the body, not even about the mind as much. It's about your soul, that fire inside. Not all humans have got their fire fueled, because it's not just having the fire going. It's about making it thrive. It's about making sure that the fire inside you burns brighter than the world around you, she said, and it didn't answer any question right then. 
But before I could ask anything else, an alarm went off around the base. Aisha grabbed her gun and stood up before looking back at me. Tekken, make sure you add Kindle to your fire. I see the sparks. You'll find your fuel soon enough, she said with a smile and ran off to the vehicles. It was a little bit after the war. I'd been assigned to study the humans and I was on their earth. I had been given the opportunity to work and watch some of them throughout their days, spending a week or so with them. It was through this time that I really began to dive deep into the humans. The first was a blacksmith. While not exactly one of the more necessary jobs in modern times, it was an enlightening experience. I won't go too heavily into the everyday, just what I observed through his work. It was odd though. In every piece, from knives to swords to simple sculptures, everything had a hint of him, part of his fire. For every tool in his shop, it radiated with him, and he also took on parts of them too, both physically, his body adapting, developing strength, better grip, calluses from the tools. Mentally, he hardened, learned, every new tool growing with him and his craft, stronger, sturdier, taking with it the scarred and scuffed edges of his soul, purifying it, like the metal he molded, beating it into shape, his pillows matching the banging of steel, fire coming from both him and the forge. It was a symbiotic relationship, in a way. The second person was a writer, and they were sort of the same. One they wrote, every character, every setting, parts of them littered within, but evolving past just them, and those parts, those characters, th those stories that evolved past him, they imprinted back onto him, Changes, ideas, stories coming from them, just the same was way that he had done to them. They were like symbiotic relationships, in a way. It was from those two mainly that I began to understand. Understand this fire within the humans. It isn't as simple as a furnace or an engine, nor is it a raging flame that destroys everything it touches. It's almost like a purifier or a smoothing stone. It is a fire that refines... It is an all-encompassing warmth, and while it fuels, it doesn't destroy. It simply changes. It takes anything it touches, whether steel, stone, or sapient. It turns a weapon into a limb, an unknown species into a family, steel into art, and words into stories. It turns emotions into fuel. It turns a human into an unstoppable force. It turns other creatures into something that can truly live. It turned me into its own kindling. I met back up with Aisha a couple years later, me still studying humans, her still fighting like hell. A couple of limbs replaced, but still, that fire inside her. <laughs> My friend, it seems you found your fire then. So, do you understand us humans yet? She said, a hand going onto my shoulder. Hell no, I don't think I even you lot do, I responded with a chuckle. Damn straight. Let's share some stories then. Been a damn minute since Dunia, Aisha said, grabbing a box of drinks and carrying it over. I don't understand humans, but now I understand how they do it, how they fight against unthinkable odds, continue past every challenge. I understand the human plane. End of story. Story number two. Pax Humanum, written by Foxcorp. For countless millennia, humanity had scoured the stars. The Milky Way has been kept under close watch. There has been a significant lack of war for their entire era of human universal dominion. 
We, the Hatglon, once ruled this galaxy with an iron fist. Now, we are the ones being crushed by the Neutronian group of human beats. For the past month, we've noticed an immense drop in human military presence within the Milky Way. Their communications and movements have been seemed frantic, almost panicked. There are rumors of rebellion outside the Universal Group. I, Delarius II, son of Delarius the Great, believe now is the time to reclaim our place, the stars. Sir, with all due respect, this is the human militarum we're talking about. They've destroyed entire galaxies with a mere thought of it before. They could decimate us within many seconds. Tyrellus II didn't let the intelligent position of his advisor sway him. Humanity's militarum is split. They must fight their own in their outer regions. Their forces are too divided to mount a proper defense campaign with their impenetrable core galaxy. The mockery in the aspiring emperor's voice was apparent. Billions of years isolated from the throne, billions of years forced to live as a commoner in a human empire. The degradation of his armor was unbearable. It would all end today. If you insist, sir, it is only my duty to serve. Ready our fleets to establish a diplomatic channel with the humans. I want to see the shock on their faces as I make their empire crumble before their very eyes. How much longer do we have to decide? The room went dead silent for multiple seconds. Less than an hour, our defenses around Andromeda have been destroyed. The insanity has spread to uncountable amounts. If we do this, we kill everything outside the shielded region for good. There'll be no possibility of a cure. If we don't, it could spread through the gate. We can't let the multiverse be infected by our experiment. This would be genocide in the highest degree. We can't seriously be considering it. Would you rather your family be turned into a wrenching mass of insaners for all eternity? There is no cure for this affliction. It occurs in the highest dimensions of consciousness. The suffering is eternal. It would be cruel to allow them to continue living. The Empire has stood for a billion years. Do we really want to end our legacy with a genocide so absolute that not even a single strand of codons will survive the slaughter? No life will be left to save. Unless we utilize the Goronoshi project. That project is insane. If anything goes wrong within the hundred million years of hibernation, the weapons will need to be fired a second time. I know. That would destroy our interdimensional link. Everything that survived will be doomed to an entropic demise. It is no better than that demise of eternal torment with your own mind. The rumor was once again silent. Implant the Goronoshi. If everything goes well, we can. The Hatclons have declared independence. Fleets are attacking human population within their proclaimed borders. Is it time? The silence was deafening. Why have the humans not responded yet? The room of advisors was just as surprised as the Emperor himself. We have no idea, sir. Human ship movements detected. Tyrellus sat up in his throne. Where are they moving? They're, uh... They're retreating to Earth and Zion, sir. They run back to their cradles. One natural home, one wretched abomination of steel. We can allow Earth to survive, but that horrid mass of metal, it must be destroyed. Dispatch our fleet to Zion. Cut their head right off of their shoulders. Humans have begun moving, sir. What do you mean, moving? They're being teleported to Zion. All of them, outside of Sol. To defend the gargantuan world by sheer number. I don't know why, sir. 
The room was silent for a moment. Just what were these humans up to? Massive gravitational anomalies detected. I count five, no, ten, twenty, one hundred. What is going on? The emperor bellowed in fury. The humans have unveiled no less than a hundred supermassive black holes. How is that even possible? The screeching of alarms alerted the room to the first signs of their impending doom. Each black hole has gone active. What does that mean? The galaxy has just been turned into the most extreme quasar in the universe has ever seen. The energy is traveling and faster than light. Sensors are being knocked offline. The robotic voice of the alarm wailed out with extreme volume. Radiation alert intensifying. The emperor muttered his last words. By the stars, what have they done? The twisting pair of magnetars that protect the Genoshi project swirled violently. Their immense magnetic field prevents the gargantuan bursts of the human superweapons from killing the precious cargo that is encompassed deep within the orbital planet's crust. The human construct that amplifies the power of the magnetars is forced to work under immense pressure. Its secondary task of keeping the orbiting magnetars from colliding is also put under extreme strain. The machine must not fail. The fate of humanity's legacy hangs in the balance. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1824 A.H.F. Written by Speedhump23 The Ka'as attackers appeared without warning. The long-range detection systems did not see anything coming. The only reasons the defense systems and defense craft were able to respond at all was when the Ka'as appeared. They declared that they would be attacking in one-twentieth of a rotation. They were given the defenders time to respond. The system defense forces were no match for the invading Ka'as. The battle was confusing. The way they fought in space made no sense. Once an attacking craft had selected a defense ship, it was the only ship to engage it. If the defense force ship killed the Ka'as, no other ship would engage it, until the ship fired upon another attacker. Then all the nearby Ka'as ships would turn on impenetrable shields and then turn to engage it. If more than one ship engaged the Ka'as, all the nearby Ka'as would turn and fire at the defenders until they were dust. No escape pods, no debris remained. They would turn off the shields and go back to the one-on-one -on -one combat. Maybe 5% of the Ka'as attackers were destroyed. The satellite defense systems almost paid for themselves. They reduced the initial landing force by about 10% before being taken out by energy weapons. The air defense forces found the same odd behavior. A defending fighter was engaged by one of the attacking craft. That would be the only ship that fired on the defending air-breathing fighter. If the fighter killed the Ka'as craft and then engaged another one, the same thing happened. All nearby Ka'as craft would engage it until the defending fighter was destroyed. The few crew who ejected in one-on-one -on -one battles were ignored as they had engaged only one attacker while the single ejecting crewman who had downed an attacker and kept fighting was followed down and vaporized. Missile defense systems from ground forces reduced the invading force a bit more. The local heavy armored ground system seemed to be ineffectual against the ground Ka'as ships. With the initial beachhead being within sight of the capital city, the defenders knew what they needed to do. No transports trying to evacuate civilians made it off planet with each one being swarmed and destroyed. It seems the attackers needed to kill everything. The defending army tried their best, but were obliterated to a defender. 
Even trying to take advantage of the Ka'a's strange honor system, a single unit combats did not help. Each attacking craft would land and deploy two walkers and one track tank thing. These worked would work in singles to destroy a single defending unit before moving on to the next. If they were ganged up on, they activated a powerful defensive shield and all nearby attackers would turn and to the defenders who had taken part in the gang up. Once the defenders were destroyed, the shields would drop again and they would go back to single target combat. With no further impediments to their advance on the city blocks, the enemy forces seemed to reorganize. Left behind were the heavily armored walkers, parked back in the attack craft where they attracted laser killers. Each mech was stowed. The three attack crews lined up, drew handguns and swords. Yes, they had swords and advanced towards the city. One of the last few laser defense systems on the roof of one of the city blocks opened up on the advancing attacking unit and hit an emergency shield stopping the beam. Many heavy missiles flew up from the grounded attack craft, targeting the top of the city block, destroying the top third of the building. The rest of the laser systems were turned off. An attacking unit of three reached the first city block, slaughtering a few defenders barricaded in the entrance. The single unit then proceeded to enter the block, housing over 500 family units and started to slaughter every being there. People locked in apartments were found. Parents, trying to escape down the fire escape grab chutes, were torn apart by monofilament braids. Many residents just folded up and rocked back and forth, waiting for death. The attackers were silently waiting, in huge formations of three attackers per unit, moving in what seemed to be some unknown order. The first unit attacked the nearest city block. The next unit waited until that first unit had started before moving to the next block to begin their slaughter. The third unit to begin their advance strode towards Dusty Craig's block, the small block, with only a few hundred families and no defense units to delay the slaughter. The attacking unit made it to the front doors. The storm shutters had been welded down by the local defense force in a vain attempt to give the occupants extra time. Not that extra time would help. The long blades carried by the attackers opened the doors with a few slashes. The trio moved towards the first apartment. Looking out the peephole of the apartment number four, second-rank tree groomer Sun Taylor saw the attackers go into the apartment. The lead attacker just kicked the door in, then they advanced in, ready for any response from inside. Expecting to hear screams, Sun turned away. After a few moments, the attackers rushed out of the apartment, stopping even to put the door back up. Throwing down their weapons, they fled the entrance of the area. Looking through the peephole again, a few minutes later, Sun saw another unit of Ka'as advance cautiously to the first apartment. Opening the door caused it to fall inwards. They rushed in, then, like before, they rushed out a few moments later, dropping weapons and running like the hounds of Sitnaz chased them. Each time this was repeated, the attackers always stopped back in place before continuing to flee. Units from the few remaining military units, situated in the first two blocks to be attacked, had been preparing to sell their lives dearly. The residents they had been able to collect were behind them in the rooftop community congregation area. The military units were few floors down, ready to die, when they started to notice the sounds of slaughter from further down the block, fading. Looking out over the apartment's balcony, they saw the Ka'as unit leaving their building and forming a line in front of the Dusty Craig's entrance. One by one, a unit would advance into the building, 
A few minutes would pass, and the unit would be seen running from the building, dropping their gear and weapons as they fled. Running right back up to their assault craft, taking off and screaming back into orbit. Some seemed to engage light drives as soon as they had oriented their ship spacewards. Some discovered why this was bad, but it did not stop others doing the same. Any defender that tried to get too close to see what was happening was cut down by the invaders. It seemed that they did not like what was happening, and it was not want others to see it. All day, invaders took turns. The single unit advanced into Dusty Craig City Block, then approached room number one. After entering, they fled a few moments, maybe a minute later, fleeing in terror off the planet. Their honor seemed to be broken. They did not react to defenders taking potshots at them, and the other attackers did not respond to these fleeing attackers being gunned down. As the sun started to go down, the last attacking unit to flee stopped in front of the lines and said something to the lead unit, and was cut down by them, heads being removed by long blades each attacker carried. The attackers then all stopped advancing, then sat down. Some even set up cooking units, and others seemed to start cleaning weapons. A plucky defender took a pot shot at one of the attackers, mid cooking something green, and the nearby attackers vaporized the defender's position with their energy weapons, then went back to doing what they were doing. The defenders consolidated their remaining forces during the night. City blocks in the rest of the city were quietly evacuated, sending residents by ground crawlers to anywhere but the capital city. An hour or so after sunrise, the attackers all stood up. Less than half their army was still there. The rest had fled, all being atomized discovering what happens when you hit a bird at light speed with no shields. The first unit in line advanced towards Dusty Craig, watching defenders waited. Would the miraculous occurrence from yesterday happen again? Would then the attackers be a... Yes, there they go, running back. Some attackers started to slowly drift away from the rear of the line. They seemed to be the younger, smaller cars. Maybe the line had been ordered in some sort of seniority. If so, the majority of the veterans of the attacking force had fled or died trying. This must have been having a dangerous effect on the morale of the remaining attackers. By midday, the attackers were gone. Each unit had fled Dusty Craig's first apartment, fleeing in presumed terror, abandoned their honor, weapons, and armor to leave the planet as soon as possible. Half the habitants of the two city blocks had been brutally slaughtered, with another taking huge losses when the top was blown off. The army and air defense force in this area had been obliterated. Only 10% or so was left in the local command zone. Space defense systems and system defense craft had been wiped out, but the attack had been stopped at one apartment. Now that the last attacker had fled, surviving defense personnel was already starting to sort through the hundreds of dropped weapons and tons of discarded gear, all staying well away from the entrance to Dusty Craig. Emerging from the command track, a lone army officer advanced cautiously towards apartment one. What manner of creature lived here? What force had caused hundreds of bloodthirsty attackers to turn and flee? Would he survive finding out? Stopping at the badly damaged door, something caused him to pause. Instead of walking straight in, he knocked politely, glancing at the apartment's medic response occupant stripe around the door frame. It just read, Aged Human Female. These signs were there to help local medical staff identify occupants in an emergency. From inside the apartment, a sweet voice bade him enter, 
but the voice that told him to make sure he wiped his boots at the entrance, or there would be words spoken to his mother, was said in a voice with such steel. The officer sprang to attention before he realized he'd said yes, Commander, like he was a cadet being dressed down by the general officer's backed boot. It turns out, the attacking Ka'as also knew what it was like to have a grandmother who really did not like it when you walked dirt on their carpets. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1825. Story number one, Awful. Written by Stumpy Jim. It is truly astounding that you survived, Zad. Yanu cheered as he smacked the back of his friend. And on a death world at that, truly all the females will find you attractive. Zad scratched his snout and bristled. Yeah, but then the human I was with, Magnus, uh, was the reason I survived. Deathworld is sure are strong and tough, so I'm not surprised. But then you still managed to survive, despite it. So that is amazing. Yanu sipped his drink, then rubbed his bumpy ears. What was the worst part? Zad let out a heavy sigh as a sour expression came to his face. He even gagged. What is it? Sorry, uh, j- just remembering something. Yanu's tail flicked up and swayed. Now I really want to know. All right. Zad took a deep breath, then tapped the counter. All right. So after a few months on the Death Wolf, we entered a season known for the humans as, uh, winter. A horrible change to the hellish world where water freezes. The thing called snow. Frozen lakes fall from the sky. Plants seem to die, losing all the green leaves. Grass buried in a thick sheet of snow that can sap out all the warmth from your body. Every other living animal seems to just disappear from the world. The only respite from those deadly carnivals and herbivores, only to realize that they do it because the winter is so deadly. Winter reminds me of space, that immense stillness, how cold it can seem, empty, only there's a sort of strange beauty to it. What happened? The winter is a deadly season, for not only can you freeze to death, you can even kill yourself by eating snow unmelted, apparently. Really? Yanu twitched his nose. How? Lowers your body temperature. Oh. But Magnus was smart, so he knew what to do. We never reached the point because we found us a shelter to keep us from the cold, since night is even colder than the day. Was that the worst part? No. But there is an issue during winter that humans faced on their world, and that's the issue of food. Because every animal is gone, right? Exactly. Zad nodded, taking another sip of his drink. But they learned to figure it out. What did you eat then? When Magnus found us a cave, we were lucky to find that it was already occupied by several animals. How is that lucky? Aren't Deathworld animals all killers that would maul you to death? Yes, but they were all asleep, so they couldn't do anything to us. Dad nodded and leaned back on his stool. Magnus was pretty efficient at getting them with his knife. One or two cuts, then they were dead. Yanu gulped. How big were they? Massive. Zad gestured his arms as wide as he could. Larger than a human, like five to ten times over. Humans are scary. Was that the worst part? Zad shook his head. Not even close. Then get on with it. Right. So Magnus then started using his knife to cut the animals, skinning them, removing the fur and setting it aside. He then cut up each animal into pieces, separating fat from meat. It was truly amazing to see how much meat a human could eat of an animal. How much? To the bone. Then use the bones for the marrow and for a broth. Really? Wow. That's not the half of it. 
Nanu gasped. What? They use more than that? Yes. Magnus even set the organs aside to use. Organs? Nanu gagged. Disgusting. Yeah. But apparently nutrient-dense, Magnus told me. Yanu paused for a moment and shook his head, taking a deep breath. That does sound horrible. Yeah, but the worst part was yet to come. There's more? Yes. Well, go on then. After he finished dressing the animals, that was what he called it, he took a bucket of melted snow water and began to clean the intestines. What? Yanu gagged and nearly threw up. They don't eat that, do they? Zad grimaced. They do. He managed to clean it out fully, emptying out all the gunk into a bucket. Magnus prepped all the meat into rations with fire he built and managed to sustain throughout the entire season. We ate all of it, even the horrible intestines. That's disgusting. Yeah. Zad drank deeply and cringed at the memory. Even the humans ate it. That's why they call it the offal. Because it is awful. End of story. Story number two, on foxholes and theology, written by Warp Mind. Gonthara Battlefield, after action inspection. General Rogan looked out on the battlefield. While he'd expected the battle to be bloody, he'd not expected this sort of mess. Bad enough that the brigade had been assigned to assist in the civil war on an alien world, but the defenders had some sort of obscenely overpowered electromagnetic pulse weapon. Despite any attempts to shield electronics, ground or air vehicles were swiftly targeted and disabled. The circuitry toasted on the spot. How? Better than half the time, the soldiers showed up to the battlefield and immediately dropped half their gear due to malfunctions. At the very least, the rifles were unaffected. But the night vision scopes were largely useless, and wireless comms were a pipe dream. He shook his head and returned his focus to the present gazing over the honest-to-God trenches and foxholes that scarred the ground, quickly addressing his aide. So, we finally took the site. Intel said that this was some sort of religious site that the rebels had taken over. Captain Creed slowly removed his hat and scratched his head. Yes, apparently, the place is a holy site, where those seeking their God's guidance will find it, whatever it might be. The rebels intended to gain divine aid to instill theocracy in place of a republic that governs the continent. I can't say I've noticed anything out of the ordinary, personally, but... General Rogan nodded. Give me a summary of the reports, then. Captain Creed looked at the archaic clipboard and flipped through the first few pages. Right, so we dug in eight days ago, or a week, by local calendar. Once the first reports of EM weaponry disabling our armored vehicles, drones, and aircraft came back. Fortunately, humanity's got a long history of trench warfare, even if it is, uh, it fell out of style in the 20th century. So, if you'll pardon the pun, digging up in old methods was easier than we feared. Rogan sighed. Then I's captain, but go on. Creed grinned wryly. The rebels were well bunkered around the holy site's per central point, so it took six days to burrow our way even closer, mostly in the cover of night. Overland chargers were out of the question, as there was no way that we could expect anyone to make it all the way to the fortifications in one piece until we'd essentially dug our way underneath the structures. Then two days ago, something uh, happened. Rogan arched an eyebrow. The tone of voice was unusual for his normally calm aide to come. Something? Creed frowned at the reports. 
Some of the soldiers at the front of the trench started exhibiting anomalous behavior, sir. The night was moonless. Reports have described it as remarkably dark blue. And several soldiers seemed to have experienced something that resembled uh, ecstasy. Drugs? No, sir. Religious ecstasy. The strange thing is, all soldiers who this happened to, and only the affected soldiers, are registered as atheists in the enlistment papers. Rogan frowned. So all the atheists uh, experienced something? Yes, sir. And before the sun rose, they'd grabbed assorted melee weapons, knives, ropes, makeshift clubs, pretty much anything except their firearms, and charged up over the trenches and straight into the fortifications. By reports from our own side, they did so quietly, with the sort of menacing inevitability to them, even. That's unsettling, so they breached the fortifications. Like lightning, sir. Seventy-three soldiers somehow slipped into the enemy's stronghold and methodically stabbed, strangled, or bludgeoned every single adult to death, with neither hesitation nor remorse. Mogan's eye twitched. Why did you specify every adult like that? Creed scratched his cheek. Well, sir, there were seventeen children, offspring of some of the rebels, present, and the soldiers gently gathered them up and carried them out and to a safe location off the battlefield, where they are now taking care of them until all living relatives can be found. We're honestly not quite sure about what to do with the afflicted troops, though. So, uh, what do you think happened? Creed Chucky said, Sir, there is an old saying. There is no atheists in a foxhole. It seems that these atheists found, or rather, they were found by Kali. General Rogan looked out of the battlefield once more. The trenches scarring the land, and the broken fortifications, carefully covered stretches, were carried outside for burial. I think, uh, I think we should give the 73 a medal, nominate them for medals of valor, and uh, honorably discharge them, citing moral conflicts and religious exemptions. Creed's brow furrowed. Sir? General Rogan shook his head. We can get away with it this once, I think. But there is no way knowingly having a whole company of Kali worshippers is not a war crime of some sort. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1826 Human Day, written by Weirdo5255 Key! Key, look! The older sister smiled, then extended her talent towards the molting trundling towards her across the smooth stone floor, his three legs pattering as he moved towards her. Yes, Ola, I see it, said Kihi, as she grabbed a maltling in her talons, keeping him in place. Ola puffed himself up, looking like nothing more than a ball of feathers, a beak, three flailing legs, and three waving talons. I'm a human, exclaimed Ola, as he grabbed the mask that was hidden somewhere in his feathers and slipped it over his face. The cheap plastic covered two of his eyes, leaving two more to glare out at his siblings awaiting approval. Kii buffed her feathers in resignation. I can see you're a human. You do have a lot of feathers, though. I didn't think they had those. The ball of feathers in question wriggled out of his sibling's grasp and fell onto the ground. I don't have feathers. I have hair. I comb and pile it in different ways as it gets longer. To emphasize his point, Ola dragged his talons over the top of his head, causing his already messily collected feathers to stick out almost straight up. Kii grinned. Oh, there we go. Now you're most definitely a human. 
Ola jumped in happiness, squirmed out of his sister's grip, tumbling to the floor. The small mottling carefully picked up his third leg and modeled out of the center of the room, barely keeping his balance on only two stubby limbs. Why can't you be that cute? Asked Key's mother, watching at her youngest mottling wandered off, trilling to himself in merriment. Key indignantly fluffed her feathers out. I'm 23, mother, and I am fairly certain that you have images of me doing far more embarrassing things. One of Key's fathers looked up from the roost in the corner of the room. We do, but it's never the same. All grown up like you are, and we can't call you cute anymore. Key's other father let out a small whistle. Well, we can call her beautiful. I have heard she is courting no less than four males at the moment. All of whom I'm sure are far better for her than the two males I'm stuck with, muttered Kiyi's mother, glaring at her mates. Kiyi's fathers glanced at one another and both wisely decided to say nothing. Any utterances, as she was in such mood, would bar them both from the nest for the night, leaving them to sleep on the center room perches. Key's mother chirped in annoyance. Key, you are not actually caught in four, are you? At your age, that is likely to lead to a ruin. Keep yourself to two. Key blanched her low eyes, snapping closed in embarrassment. Mother, that is none of your business. In any case, I am not courting four males. Key was not going to mention that the number was larger than what her mother thought. But then, she was so old-fashioned, thinking that anything beyond three mates was scandalous. Her mother glared at her for several long moments and let out a disgruntled warble. I don't need to know. You are right. Now, go and make sure that your brother is ready. I have feathers to pull. She turned back to the two males in the room who both quickly quilled under her gaze. Key retreated, glad her fathers were so understanding and willing to cover for her. Hola, are you ready to go? She squawked, backing out of the center room of the main nest. Ola popped his head down from one of the higher roosts in the ceiling. Are we leaving? In a moment. You need more than that mask. It's cold today. Where is your heat generator? The mottling dropped from the high perch to the floor, landing in an uncoordinated heat. I don't need it. Key slowly blinked four times. Where is it, Ola? Looking at his sister and seeing something of his mother in that case, the mottling quickly realized that he was not going to win this argument in my nest. Let's go and get it then. We are going to be leaving soon as you have it. That got the motley to move, leaping up to his feet, forgetting to pretend that he was human. Ola quickly padded on his three peg-like feet towards his nest at the end of the room and dove into it. Following, to ensure he did not become distracted, Kiyi watched as he dug about in the synthetic branches and stuff that was his nest. Toys, several data pads, and a disturbing amount of food was quickly flung into the center cavity of the nest as Ola searched. Flitting from one part of the nest to another in flurries of moon, only ever searching one location for a heartbeat before looking in another. Ola, I have it, cried the mottling. Pulling the cylinder out, Ola held it up and quickly strapped it to his leg. Kihi looked at the mess in the center of the small nest. First thing when we get home... You're cleaning. When we get home, let's go, said Ola, ignoring the task for the moment. Bounding forward, the mottling grabbed at the branch of Key's father's and dragged her back to the center of the room. 
Key glanced at a few feathers on the floor and looked at her mother, who was slowly preening herself. Both fathers were trading looks with one another, looking somewhat bemused at the posture the day had to endure from their mate. Are we ready to go? We are ready. We're going to see a human, chirped Ola. Settling onto her perch, Key put a talon on Ola to ensure he remained still, which was an impossible task as he bounced up and down. Humans have only two eyes. How do you think they see things? asked Ola. They seem to get by, said Key, distracted. She was starting to regret volunteering to take her brother forward into the limited closer seats to the stage. Her mother and fathers were further back in the stadium, not having to watch a child in the pressing crowd. Humans can consume both meat and plants. I think that's amazing. You could drop one on almost any planet and they would live, said Ola, excitedly, as he once again pulled the mask over his face. Very interesting, Ola. Now calm yourself. We need to settle in if we want to see the human. Ola's eyes widened and his feathers went flat. For a brief moment, the mottling was absolutely still. Before he once again started to bounce up and down with excitement. He let out a low keen and tearing her eyes from the mottling looked around the stadium. It was filled with her species for the most part. But nearer to the stage were several hundred aliens of varying species. He looked them over taking in the strangeness of them for several moments. A low hum blared and their sonic boom echoed over the stadium. Humans, said Ola, before anyone else in the vicinity. The famed drop pod flared its jets and dropped into the stage with enough force to cause the metal beneath it to screech in protest for a moment. Key shied away from the bright flare of the rockets, but Ola, ever eager, watched. The metal pod was still for only a moment before the hatch in its front fell away, revealing a small human who slowly stepped out. The human was clad in their customary isolation suit and raising a soft talon, it stepped out of the drop pod, its helmet reflecting the light of the day into the crowd. Hello! shouted the human into the microphone. The crowd let out a cheer. Sprinting through the sunlight, Key looked at the human. It was a male as far as she could determine, an old the skin on its face was wrinkling and pockmarked. Scars ran down one side of its face, and the hair was wispy white. Still, it looked to have some eagerness Key so often saw in Ola's eyes. I thank you for inviting me to your human day. The crowd let out another cheer that continued for several minutes. Key let herself be swept up in the merriment and joined in, shouting. As she did so, she continued to observe the human and determined it was a male, given the lack of fat deposits on the chest. The human raised his hands and slowly lowered them, calm and quieting the crowd. Ola was now frozen in place, his eyes locked the human. When humanity stumbled on this confederation, it was a nation only in words and theory. There was no spirit, no cooperation, no camaraderie. The species of this galaxy were together, but distinct and unchanging. The only times that many species interacted was to expand and then contest borders. The only trade being done was raw resources, rocks, minerals, elements. Those were the only things traveling between the stars. The galaxy was still cold and lifeless, each species only carving out a larger hole to wither and die in. 
the human began its speech, and the crowd listened. Attention focused on the member of the historic species. The human stood up straight at them, the wrinkles on the face behind the clear metal tightening, lending its face more youth. So we humanity struck out. We tried to bring the galaxy together. Humanity was not homogenous, and we saw no reason to be. We took pride in the fact that although the inhabitants of one planet, of one continent, one city, one household to the next, each person was different from another, and yet we were still one. The Confederation back then, when we first were traveling between the stars, did not agree. The small human let out a laugh. <laughs> yeah, the first great achievement that humanity counted was the purchasing of a scrap barge from the Giro. This planet and its inhabitants were the first species we turned to in the stars to learn about, to try and learn from. We took the scrap vessel and pulled every bit of data we could from it. Not just the computer data, but everything we could learn from the scratches in the floor to the arrangement of the corridors. The human looked out at the crowd. He shifted on her feet as the human's eyes swept over her. It was disconcerting the way that humans seemed to lock eyes with an entire crowd, even with only one set of eyes. We learned that the Giriel were alien and at the same time familiar. You are not free of war, strife, problems. Like us, though, you love, you care for your families above almost anything else and want nothing more than to raise your children and ensure their lives are better than your own. For 300 years, humanity learned, collected and adapted. We tried to share our own culture with others and what we had learned from other aliens. No one wanted to listen. The human shook his head, causing the wrinkles on his face to move like feathers as he did so. It is not an admonishment. When I was a child, humanity was content to collect and learn, taking in the culture of a hundred worlds. Some humans even dedicated entire worlds to the art of culture replication. We tried to emulate the aliens of the galaxy. We wanted to learn through experience. It was a glorious time for humanity. The human curled up his soft talons at his club. When I was only 15, the age between child and adult for humans and the enemy attacked. The Tawi were wiped out in a day and made their famous plea to the stars for aid only when the star of their home system was consumed. The coalition government, apathetic and powerless, having never faced a threat even close to that of the enemy, was paralyzed. A million species for the first time trying to work together in a bid to save themselves at the cost of others. Humanity was only another alien voice shouting, beginning. He reached into a pocket in his suit and slowly drew out a small black knife. He spun it around in his hand for several moments, eyes locked on the weapon. Humanity had interacted with as many species as possible, and so we approached the fur EU to try and form a more lasting union. A vicious domineering species, one that respected only power and personal achievement, were the fur EU. They are nearly double our height, and if they had any inclination for expansion through the space, they could have perhaps just been as dangerous as the enemy. 
The commander of the now-famous Human Marines challenged the Emperor of the Fur EU in single combat. The alien, stunned, and seeing us only as small creatures, accepted the challenge with a laugh of dismissal. The human flicked the blade down, and it embedded itself into the stage, vibrating for a moment. Of course, the Emperor was fighting a Marine. Kiki, along with the rest of the aliens, smiled, and a smattering of laughter filtered through the crowd. The prowess of the human warriors was well known, and nearly unmatched, although few marines were human anymore. When he won, Commander Voskos had the fair EU Emperor at knife fight by his own blade, the one you see in front of you. He offered an ultimatum. Key's eyes widened, and she looked at the object. It was the knife that had begun it all, but the human was to be believed. Instead of killing the man and rightfully taking command of the Empire, Commander Voskos did something unprecedented in fur EU culture. He helped his opponent up and offered him more power under the condition he listened to new ideas. Voskos promised the Emperor that he and his warriors would never have to want for battle. He promised that they would be able to fight for righteousness against the ultimate foe. The human leaned down and fumbling slightly with the heavy gloves he was wearing, pulled the knife out of the stage. So contrary to our fictions, the most violent race of aliens we could find besides the enemy submitted to learn from us. The human put the knife away and pulled out a small wooden branch, one that had several dozen lengths of cloth tied to it. Humanity continued this pattern, bringing races and species together under our banner not by impressing on them our own ideals, but by understanding them to the best of our abilities and appealing to that. I, at the age of twenty, was part of the contingent that negotiated with the Flareon. A princess with spikes, poisonous spurs, and acidic blood gifted me this promissory to seal their allegiance to humanity after one of my greatest friends sacrificed himself in one of their religious ceremonies to call upon their gods. The human placed a stick on the podium. As we gathered species under our bat and tried to organize every resource, we took it upon ourselves to execute the brutal mathematics of war. I do not envy the leaders of humanity at the time. As we amassed allies in power, we willfully ignored billions. We consciously left billions of men, women, and children to be consumed by the enemy. We tried to save as many as we could, but even so, the galaxy lost nearly 5,000 species. 5,000 unique perspectives. Entire histories and people who now only exist in the libraries of humanity. The human held the stick up and the cloth on it bellowed in the wind. The Flarian are amongst those lost. The human sighed and the entire stadium was silent for a moment. Stunned by the speech, Key nearly fell back onto her haunches. Shaking her head and looking for a distraction, she glanced down at Ola. Or at least, where he was supposed to be. The mottling was absent from his small perch. Jerking around, Key looked for him in the crowd. The mathematics of war are brutal. We should not be forgiven for letting those species burn. I can only say that it was the only way that we could win. And, to this day, what is left of humanity regrets it. Key straightened up, looking for her sibling. 
barely managing to stop herself from calling out. When the enemy reached the system, we, humanity, and the 40,000 species we allied with attacked. The warlike, the moderate, the peaceable, each fought and served alongside humanity. The warlike humans sacrificed and burned in joyous glee with the warrior species. The moderate humans panned alongside the knowledgeable generals of the very army and coordinated support for the army of Trillians. The peaceable remained in the background, with those who swore never to take life and healed the injured, cured the sick, and fought to save every life possible. The human drew in a shaky breath. I was nearly 50 when this took place. Most humans of fought were raised alongside the allies of humanity and were alien themselves. Something humanity took joy in. The enemy, as simple as they were, as powerful as they were, only lost due to overconfidence. Trillions died in that battle, and in a last spiteful move, the enemy laid a curse on humanity. The human virus. The human tapped his helmet. They understood in their last moments what had defeated him, and took revenge. I hesitated to call anything pure evil, but the enemy is close. The human held up his hand and clenched it off for a moment in his suit. They uh, took it all away. A virus harmful only to humanity, lethal within a day. Every species is a carrier, every form of life save our own. We are once again relegated to a single world. Outnumber not even a billion out of what was once trillions. The many allies we formed can do nothing but watch as we lament. The human drew himself up. As horrible as the virus is, it shows how little the enemy understood. We have passed along our thoughts, our ideas. Ever since that day of the enemy's defeat, the people of this galaxy have strived to learn from and understand one another. You see us as a model, and I tell you with certainty, you will surpass humanity. Do not give up your own ways, but do not hesitate to learn from others. Some ways are better, some worse. All are different, and you can at the very least strive to understand. Even if my species should pass into darkness, the spirit of humanity will not die. The human punched his soft talon into the air, and Key now desperately searched the crowd, only half listening to the alien, desperate to find her sibling glanced up. Above the human and the rafters of the stage, a familiar ball of feathers and enthusiasm moved. Nearly all eyes locked at it, with the human's impromptu pointing. Key's feathers went flat in horror. Above the human was Ola. Each generator once again loose from its strap, and the contraption fell and hit the stage next to the human. The suited human paused and looked down, before glancing with the rest of the crowd to stare at the same spot as Key. As if sensing the attention, Ola dropped, letting go of the metal beams and mottling plummeted towards the floor. The human quickly stepped under him and caught the foolish child, barely straining to take the mottling's weight. Ola! Key gasped. The human looked out at her and then back the small mottling, who was staring back at him with all four eyes. The guards, too large tell, glanced at me and then the human, unsure what to do. Well, um, hello. Who are you? asked the human, looking at Ola, 
His words were slightly muffled, the speaker in his helmet further away from the microphone. Although the entire stadium had gone quiet enough that it was hardly needed. I'm human, squeaked Ola. He began to push away through the crowd towards the stage. You're human? In response, Ola slowly reached up and drew the mask on top of his head down. The human chuckled. It seems you are human indeed. The human turned back to the podium, and looking out at the crowd for a moment, seemed to come to some sort of decision. Ola, what makes you human? The mottling ignoring the crowd to stare at the face of the aliens he idolized thought for a moment. My, uh, face? He pointed to the cheap plastic mask. Perhaps. What else? Asked the human with his teeth showing. Ola let out a warble that was amplified through the microphone he was almost sitting on. The sound reverberated through the aliens in the stadium. He was still fighting through the crowd to retrieve her brother, was almost at stage. I want to know more. I want to learn about things that are strange and see them for myself. Well then, Ola, I have a treat for you. Reaching up, the human grabbed his helmet before the bodyguards on the sides of the stage could react. The human removed it. The stadium, which had been quiet before, was deathly silent as the seals released, and the human lifted the protective helmet away and dropped it to the stage. Taking Ola's small talon, the human raised it to his face. Ola let out a low bleat as he felt the human's wrinkled face. You... you're gonna die now, squeaked Ola, even as he felt the human's skin wonderment still in his voice. The human laughed and he stepped forward towards the microphone. <laughs> I'm old, Ola. I remember the times before we had to wear these things, when we were free to explore. The enemy has only made it more difficult for us. They tried to take away so much. Were we anything but human, we would be bitter by having our dreams ripped away. But it only made the dreams of exploring more arduous. Lifting the mottling up, the human placed the light-feathered creature on his shoulder and turned to the crowd. I am old. I cannot bear to be separated from the dream. Key was like every other alien, frozen now at the edge of the stage. Ola, his talons going through the human's hand now, looked down into the human's eyes and looked up. Well, what do you want to explore? asked Ola. Tell me about your world, Ola. Show me what your world is like as my last adventure. That way, we can both be human. The little mottling slowly blinked his four eyes. Okay, uh, can my sister help? The human smiled. I, uh, <laughs> I hope so. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1827. Story number one. Don't Touch Their Boats, written by Damaged Dice DM. Human space culture has long been compared to early human seafaring culture. Most of their rank designations are either directly from early naval terminology or very closely derived from it. It has the same sense of exploration and adventure. Space also attracts the same kind of human that would have been attracted to the sea all those years ago. Superstitious, brave, adventurous, 
Humans evolving on a class 14 death world may have stunted their early progress in gaining technological knowledge. When everything is trying to kill you, things like math take a back seat. That is, until they found out math could help you kill those things, at least. Due to their circumstance, they were late to the intergalactic travel scene and were widely regarded as backwater hillbillies. No one wanted to trade or ally with them, so they kept to themselves, mostly. That proved pretty easy since the Milky Way was unpopulated beyond the humans and one other race. They hopped from planet to planet, dropping colonists on worlds that no other race would even try to colonize while using technology they had developed to save their own planet from ecological disaster, began terraforming these systems into livable colonies. They were all still generally death worlds at this point, but most in the class 1 to 6 range, and the main reason for that is they seemed to insist on bringing many of the native beasts from their home world. The other residence of the Milky Way was the Negad, was much more advanced evolving on a utopian world, gave them early advantage in reaching FTL travel, but they didn't colonize worlds very often, picking only the best worlds to even attempt to do so, and only once their population was beginning to burgeon in the systems they had. As you can imagine, it was only a matter of time until the galaxy was divided between the humans and the Negad. War was inevitable, and small skirmishes broke out all over the sector, but it was the Negad that started their war in earnest. Their advisors informed them that they would lose to the humans due to the number of ships they had fielded. They suggested a first strike against the naval yards of the humans to cripple them. The sneak attack worked, hundreds of human ships and thousands of human lives lost in the span of a few hours. The Nikad retreated from system to join the main assault fleet. They considered it a victory and a turning point in the war. While it was a turning point, it was not in the Negad's favor, for they were about to learn an old human maxim. Don't touch our boats. Words traveled fast in the human-held systems, and the war machines chunked to life. Civilian manufacturing ground to a still. People turned in old equipment to be melted down for the war effort. The young men and women of the colonists volunteered en masse to human galactic navy. The Nikias had woken a human trait that had not been seen in thousands of years. When faced with insurmountable odds, change them. They didn't build for show, they produced a brick with FTL drive and as much weaponry as the hull could take. They built guns under guns that would eject the overheated or damaged gun above it and pop out spitting fire. They built ships the size of a football field that were so jam-packed with missiles and bombs that they only fit a crew of five on board. They slugged it out with the Negads for every inch of the Milky Way, taking some losses and some wins in the process. But much like their ancestors, when the chips were down, they turned to math again to do their killing. The human scientists figure out how to compress a star back into a black hole and contain it in a warhead. They send ships equipped with them to all Negad-held worlds, even those that were originally human colony worlds they had lost in the war. Every Negad was wiped out from the Milky Way in a single day, but the galaxy was now pockmarked with unstable wormholes that would take a millennia to stabilize. But it was seen as the price that they must pay to teach the oldest lesson in naval tradition. Don't feck with our boats! 
End of story. Story number two. The Void Will Stare Back. Written by Fimer Gallison. Humans, at first glance, average in everything. Strength, not the best, not the worst. Logical intelligence, a little above the Federation standard. Aggressiveness differs from specimen to specimen, but still uh, average. Speed, senses, communication methods, all average. And yet, they are the most unique species. Because, you see, humans have the spark. Yes, the spark. This is what drives them forth. It glimmers in their eyes, ready to transform into a raging fire. It makes them do weird, stupid things. It makes them forego the primal need to survive. They aren't cut to simply survive. They have to live. It transpires everywhere in their culture. I can't even conceive half the things a human toddler can do while playing with the spark. Just playing. Only to sedate boredom. The creativity of a human is uh, abhorrent. So, so much of everything that can be closed in a sentence. The deepest secrets of the universe that show through in a kid's painting. The sheer power that their spark produces, that can scar you for life. For me, it seems like they just uh, popped into existence and started creating. It makes me churn in my skeleton. Humans don't realize this. The way everybody shies away from their line of sight. The way every single one person from outside their species just goes catatonic when they start to create. It's something completely normal for them. This need to imagine things that don't exist. To will them into the real planes. To exchange and twist and draw and write and sing and create. 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 When we first found them, the emissaries that were sent returned changed. The human spark made them shine. It made them buzz with the same restless energy that the humans exude. This effect faded with time, leaving them empty. Lacking something they never needed. And their home world, Terra, Gaja, Earth, Sol 3, that planet. I saw it once, on the orbit. My mind is still reading back from the sheer beauty of that world. It was thrumming with life, with a life that was so constantly under the spark's influence. I blacked out for four fractions of a spin of my home planet, overwhelmed. What did I see down there? I could only try to deduce... I'm deeply afraid of the spark. I'm deeply afraid of humankind. Of their creation. Of their power. Of their way their minds are wired. That lets them do things that wouldn't be possible for a normal being. And humans are still clueless about that. Remarking that our cities are dull and boring. Offering their help in making them more cheerful. Letting us into their world making us see the mind-numbing beauty of gazing upon the creation itself, telling us that they find our culture extremely weird. Or it is completely ordinated and born out of millennia of painstaking, putting a brick over a brick, with regard only to practicality. Is this really the escapes of their imagination? That we are lacking their spark, that we can't do creative things only, Seems fitting. They are like miniature gods that with one blink can make reality change to their will. 
that can look upon a rock and see countless possibilities, that marvel at us and our homes, because we aren't so powerful, and they, they, like the kids they are, can't understand why. Why we don't create, why we can't understand their jokes, why it took us a millennia before we achieved a fraction of what they have achieved in a mere century. Yes, they are the only true kids of the universe, the humankind, the lesser creators, the children of the stars. They are the only ones that fit in this universe. They can be either because they were tailored for it, or because it was tailored for them. And I don't know what terrifies me more. There is the saying, if you stare into the void, it'll stare back. Makes no sense, right? Not for us. Never for us. How could it? Only for them. The void will stare back only for them. There is nothing average in a human. Nothing. Even their body seems to be. And you... What do you think? Are they like us? Creatures of flesh and bone, bound to the earth we walk on? Or are they something else? Something outside our realm of living? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1828. Story number one. The indomitable human spirit. Written, hope, data, adapt. It's over. The interrogator electrocuted the human again. The biped screamed out in pain from the vaults as I stand behind the glass watching the human's vitals. His heart won't be able to take another shock. It is beating fast and becoming erratic by the second. If not through cardiac arrest, then heart failure will kill him. Now this done, your species is finished. No point in resisting. It was true. I witnessed the fall of the last human bastion on Earth. I watched those walls crumble. The towers fall, and the ground blast. I've inspected countless human bodies, read the statistics, analyzed the reports. Earth, the home of humans, is torn apart. After decades of war, the humans have put up a valiant effort against our attacks. At first, we only wanted to enslave the humans, just like we had enslaved the griffins and salamanders. We committed agents onto Earth, manipulated their leaders and elites, but they continue to resist. Humans were capable of defending their soil from mal-infiltrators. After a decade, they had mastered tracking, arresting, and killing our kin. It was impressive. The salamanders fell within two years, and the griffins, even with their biopheromones, fell within seven. But the humans pushed us back and locked down their home planet. We began preparing for a more direct approach. But the humans began preparing as well. They sent thousands of ships into space, established tens of outposts and habitation modules, mined the celestial bodies of the solar system, and built their military presence. As in their nature, they were still splintered within, but masterful maneuvering kept them down the path of resistance. A decade after we scaled down infiltration missions, that instead begin sending combat task forces to low-Earth orbit, the humans had built a fleet of their own. Imagine our shock when we discovered that it was a close fight. The humans' ships were more maneuverable. Unfortunately, they lacked the Delta V to fight in orbit. In three years, our fleets were positioned in low-Earth orbit, and we sent down occupational forces. 
Yet again, the humans fought back. We landed in what they call China, in the middle of a desert. There, it was easy to subjugate in the remote villages and settlements. We faced contact with organized resistance. The PLA had arrived to push us back. Compared to their ships, their land forces were pathetic. In each confrontation and engagement, human battalions were easy to dispatch. We gained ground, expanded into Mongolia and south towards the high mountains. We put all of our forces into bulk at the foot of the large mountain range. It was there that the humans did the unthinkable. They launched a tactical nuclear strike and decimated our army, crippling our ability to fight. Then a combined Chinese, Indian and Russian force pushed us back to our forward base and eventually back into orbit. We interrogated our human contact aboard the flagship on the second fleet. They had assured us that they will not use nuclear weapons on their own planet. It was there that they revealed themselves as a double agent, citing that our mistake was to think that humans will not annihilate themselves to annihilate us. And they proved it to us a second time by detonating an antimatter bomb on board the ship, engulfing the second fleet. It was then clear to us that humans will never submit until there is nothing left. Nothing left to defend, nothing left to cherish, nothing left but their broken, homeworld and scarred bodies. We escalated orbital bombardment, terror attacks, landing more and more of our troops on Earth soil, trampling human bodies beneath our feet. Today we've won, Earth is conquered, and the humans broken. But we didn't want to return empty-handed. The entire objective of our subjugation was to enslave the humans. If we do not return with some human slaves, we'd be shamed. At least, with some human slaves, we'd be able to breed them up. But if we bring none, the mission is all for nothing. Expended our entire arms and resources to destroy a planet and make a species extinct. Not very productive. Where's the rest of your kind? We suspected them of underground, deep bunkers. We needed information now. The human chuckled, followed by a hacking from the mouth of red blood spat onto the floor. But the human continued laughing. <laughs> oh, gory, gory. What the hell of a way to die? Oh, gory, gory. What the hell of a way to die? Some sort of military cadence. The interrogator gazed at me as I tried to decipher what it could mean. It could be a code, coordinates maybe. Be clear and concise, then you may keep your life. The human laughed again, even louder than before. <laughs> Do I have to say it to you like that wasn't a clear enough hint? The room was silent and the interrogator looked confused. Back, you! A standard human insult. I'm dying here. And I'm content with that. So, uh, screw off! I couldn't come up with anything. So I waved to the interrogator. Then he raised the electricity. The shock coursed through its body and fried its heart. Boring limb. Bring me the next one! And my colleague dragged the human body out to fetch the next one. I turned to my other instruments. One being a light packet interceptor. The humans used them for long-range communications. So, it was useful. But recently, it was very quiet, and understand, they'd been destroyed after all. It chimed up and I gazed into it. I tuned the amplifier to get a clear broadcast, then played it back. 
the screen shifted and showed a human astronaut helmet. The victor is not victorious until the vanquished does not consider himself so. It is not over. Every resource shall be utilized. Every hurdle overcome. Every injustice will be repaid a hundred and then a thousand times over. And when we finally meet those responsible for the murder of billions in a field of battle once more, we'll bring down upon them a hundred hammers of justice and a hundred missiles of revenge. Mercurians, our homes, needs us, and when Earth has been reclaimed and the alien Vader's beaten back, the entire galaxy will know that they came to the wrong neighborhood and knocked on the wrong door. End of story. Story number two, A Brief History of Plasma Weapons, written by ArcticYT99. Hello, class. As per the curriculum, we are here to study warfare and the weaponry with which it is fought. Today, we'll be looking at plasma weapons and their history. Plasma weapons first came about from the Terrans pre-FTL in the year 1900. First accepted into service in 1911. For reference, this was 250 of their standard revolutions ago. At the time, they were incredibly primitive and simply called flamethrowers. No more accurate terminology would be a plasma thrower. Beginning with large tanks of combustibles and only having a range of 30 common lengths, about 40 meters for the Terrans in the class, they proved to be very effective at dealing with fortifications. It is with the continued use, however, that it was decided that it was too imprecise to be used anywhere there could be non-combatants. This is to say that they would not be using it in populated areas, and strictly low population regions like forests. About 150 years later, when the Terrans first began space combat between planetary nations, the humble flamethrower saw a new purpose. Tell me, class, why is it that the fire is so dangerous in zero-g? Because uh, the heat and flames expand in all directions, and the flow becomes unpredictable. Correct. Mostly, though, there is one thing that you are forgetting. Heat is very difficult to dissipate in space, requiring radiators which cannot be opened during combat. The Terrans, having a good idea of thermodynamics at this point, realized this and understood that they could quickly end battles via setting enemy ships on fire with self-oxidizing flames. Now, their humble flamethrower still had an issue with range. This led to the creation of hypergolic thermite torpedoes that would be fired at and subsequently coat ships in hypergolic fuels and thermite as the name suggests. Now armed with the knowledge they had, the Terrans then sought to change ground warfare as well. Interestingly, development in cutting tools helped. Imagine a cutting torch using acetylene and oxygen and you'll be halfway to understanding how their plasma weapons work. Turns out, the surface tension of particles can still hold to each other even when highly energized. This just requires a precisely cut barrel to rotate the plasma in such a way as to maintain the cohesion. For fans of kinetics, this cutting is very similar to the rifling used in stabilized bullets. These technological advances then led them to the plasma lance, a rifle-type weapon that takes the term firearm, literally, and has a range of 300 meters. It may not be a long distance, but do note that most small arms engagements happen at about 200 meter distance. For every plasma weapon after that, it is the same concept as the plasma lance, but different scales, 
or more precise shaping. The Terran Army's plasma cannon is a great example of this, having a range of 1,500 meters and capable of cutting most armors with ease. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for class today. Be sure to do your readings. There is a test in three comrades. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1829 Yes, ma'am. Written by Alt Cypher. The shuttle roared as it lit upon the law, blowing exhaust in all directions. The door to the small prefab home burst open, and a woman easily in her seventh stopped out. You sons of bitches! Better not have jacked up my chrysanthemums! Do you knuckle-dragging space jockeys know how damn hard it is to get them to grow on alkaline soil? She shouted over the din of the now-resting Landcroft. The shuttle door cycled open, and two troopers and one officer ambled down the ramp. The immediate onslaught of abuse caught them unawares and pushed them back a step, as the old woman made a beeline for them. Lord Almighty, do any of ya even have half a brain between ya? No, of course you don't. If ya did, ya wouldn't have joined up. The old woman seemed to be getting on a roll now. Ma'am... Lieutenant Feldman tried to inject. Ma'am, if I might. And what the hell are you doing bringing rifles up to my front door? How do you know I'm not some roughneck campout? I could have had this whole place mined and covered with sniper's nests. Sweet Jesus, don't they teach you anything in the academy these days? Or do they just let you walk right into the enemy fire? Roughnecks don't plant chrysanthemums, ma'am, Lieutenant Feldman said. This was so unexpected, the old woman stopped short and had to consider his answer. The verbal avalanche had finally fell into a blissful silence. Even, if only for a moment, they might, was all the old woman could offer as a response. Ma'am, I am Lieutenant Feldman. We are here to evacuate you. If you could grab any vital items, we need you to be at wheels up in five minutes. Evacuate! What the hell for, LT? The two troopers stifled the laugh as the old woman called out the lieutenant. Ma'am, the war against the Vardell isn't going well. All Earth forces are pulling back from this sector. You'll be in Vardell-controlled space within the next few days, the lieutenant said. Vardell? Hell, there are nothing but jumped-up swamp critters. They can't behold territory worth a damn. No, you go on ahead and pull back. I'm staying. But that, the old woman turned to go back into the small plastic and fiberglass house. Ma'am, I'm afraid I must insist, the lieutenant called after her. Corporal, please escort her into the shuttle. One of the troopers stepped forward, and the old woman wheeled on him faster than he thought possible. A gun in her hand, held directly between the corporal's eyes, where there was no armor or helmet. Son, the woman said, I lived a life I'm not all that proud of most days, but I'll be goddamned if I let someone else live it for me. Now, I understand your boy's got a job to do, but I ain't leaving. You delivered your message, and I declined. Now get. Sir, the corporal, with the gun between his eyes, asked, Leave her, the lieutenant said. Both of you, back on the shuttle. The corporal slowly backed away and marched into the shuttle with his compatriot. The lieutenant stayed a moment longer. You know, once we pull out, we won't come back for you, the lieutenant asked. I do, the old woman said. You'll be on your own against the Vardal. No way to contact us and with no help coming. Yeah, that's what on my own means. Is there anyone you want me to contact? Any family I should alert? Nah, I said my goodbyes a long time ago, LT. My kids didn't approve of the way I made my living, so when I retired, 
We went our separate ways. Husband's been dead uh, 20 years now. Sister too. Yes, ma'am. I understand. Well, good luck, the lieutenant said. He turned and walked back into the shuttle. It lifted off, damaging more chrysanthemums and disappearing into the blue sky. Two months later, another shuttle, clearly a different origin and crafted by a different culture, landed in some distance away. The chrysanthemums had been replaced by a hearty breed of roses, prickly thorns and all. Two beasts with slick, greasy hair sauntered out of the shuttle. The ground quaked with their stamps as they each weighed over 300 kilos. Their sharp teeth and beady eyes belayed their cunning moods. I wondered when the hell you'd show up, the old woman said as she walked out of her prefab. Human, one of the beasts said through a mechanical translator on his chest. You know property of Vardal, this our world. Uh-huh, the old woman said. The beast stared at her. You're too young. She turned and walked back into her house. The two beasts looked at each other and then at the house. The beast with the untranslated turned and walked back to the shuttle. His partner followed. Three months after that, another shuttle, more ornate than the last, swirls of colors chased each other around the hull. Four beasts exited this one and stood at attention as a fifth beast, more richly dressed, strode past them. This well-dressed beast walked toward the old woman's hut. He stopped just before he made the rose bushes. The old woman was sitting in a chair in front of her door watching the procession. You are in Vardal territory now, human, the well-dressed beast said through a smaller, more elegant translator. You will be taken prisoner and this world will be colonized by us. The old woman looked at the well-dressed beast up and down, judging him and finding him lacking. You insult me. Your people disrespect my position. The well-dressed beast stood there and watched for a moment. Then he turned and walked back into the shuttle. The guards fell in behind him, and soon the shuttle was but a memory. Six months after that, an ornate gilded shuttle set down as a barely a whisper at the edge of the valley, where the old woman made her home. An honor guard of at least a dozen soldiers rushed out and stood at attention. An older but still sturdy beast proudly marched out the ramp and up to the old woman's home. He stopped at the rose bushes. Madam, the older beast said with no translator, you are in our sovereign territory. As such, you will be a guest of the Vardal until such time as we deem. This planet will become a hub of commerce, trade, art, and the Vardal way of life. The old woman thought for a moment. She stared at the older beast. This is the third time your people have had insulted me, Vardal. Is this how you treat your guests? A shoddy honor guard and some intermediate functionary. No, leave this place. The old beast paused, then turned and walked away. The shuttle whispered off the valley floor. One year later, nearly two full years from the human's visit, the grand shuttle broke through the clouds. More escort shuttles blanked it, above and below Fighters flew air patrols for hundreds of kilometers in every direction. The escort shuttles landed first, with guards boiling out of them to prepare the way. Each soldier polished and burnished to within an inch of his life, all standing ramrod straight, looking as professional as they possibly could. The grand shuttle settled silently in the center of the formation as the fighters circled high overhead. The grand shuttle's ramp descended, and the beast stood at the top of the ramp, 
Here now, a great stallion of the Vardal approaches. Make way for the heart of Vardal. The crier stepped aside and an old grey beast slowed. Slowly, slowly walked down the ramp. He made his way unaided across the small valley to the old woman's hut. He saw the rose bushes and paused to smell the sweet scent. You know, the old woman said, you're the first one to actually smell them. Oh, well, the grace beast said, youth is always in a hurry. That they are. I suppose you know why I am here. The last three envoys you sent were disrespectful. The old woman said, I should have shot the first one. Perhaps, the grey beast replied. But then we would not be having this conversation. We'd only be having a different one. Your people put a lot of stock in respecting your elders. Since I didn't give in to those children you sent, they had to find someone of similar stature, which is a pretty short list. Tell me, human woman. What is it that you have done that entitles you to such respect? You have no servants in your household. You command no arbeats. You possess no great wealth. Yet you count yourself my equal. Now all of that is true. I do have degrees in engineering and science. More than a few, in fact. I worked for our military for all my life. Some of the weapons that have been carving you up are my designs. I've likely killed more of your people than anyone. We have many weapons makers, yet none are my equal. I built this homestead on my own, got those roses to grow after some jackass fried my chrysanthemums. Been living off the land on an alien world for the better part ten years now. A life built by one's own hand is noble, but it is still not equal to controlling the destiny of an entire race. You want to know why I think you're no better than me? I have traveled long to hear that very answer. Because I'm the bad bitch that killed the Doyen of the Vardel. The explosion was visible across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Earth forces in nearby sectors saw the sensor's red line for several seconds, and many of them shut down to protect the sensitive equipment. Scientists were stumped as to what was in that bomb, as even antimatter should not have been that terrible. The peace treaty signed the following week, as hell since then. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1830 Human Medicine, written by MWNN19 I was always a curious pup, striving to learn more, always asking questions about everything and anything. But it wasn't until I was older, until I was already a proper adult, that I found my true core. And that was medicine. For countless eons, my people fought to find a way to extend our lives, to cast off our mortal coil. We knew that it was impossible, not only on a biological level, but also on a philosophical level. One's mind, no matter how advanced and intelligent, can't handle a life that long. We had our struggles, we had our wars, where the medical field was expanded. We had medical teams save many wounded soldiers from certain death. My people weren't known for their warlike behavior. We were a peaceful people, for the most part. We had no major conflicts, or at least major conflicts compared to other people of the galaxy. 
I studied history and knew well enough about the brutality of combat and what problems may arise in mere medical sense. But even with our advanced techniques and technology, the ability to regrow limbs, to bring back the dead to the world of the living, there are simply some cases where the die has been cast and nothing can be done. I've lived through a war, a peacekeeping operation to be exact. The weapons used in modern sophisticated warfare are such that a single good hit and you're done. Rarely do soldiers who were shot return back to the live. Even if they do, they are a lost cause. Being a man of medicine, a doctor, my duty was to my patients, no matter their race or creed. I studied the biologies and physiologies of various people of the galaxy. Though even with the help of AI and neurological enhancers, there is simply too much to take in. Sometimes my lack of knowledge meant the death of another. I had no other choice but to give up. I cannot begin to describe that feeling. That feeling of seeing those soldiers' desperation, their pleas, and me being unable to do anything to comfort them. Death, as it seems, is here to stay no matter how much we advance. Virtually all my fellow men and women of medicine accepted that as fact, no matter the race or frame of mind. It was a simple, if depressing, fact. After I returned home, completely disheartened, I felt that I needed guidance. For all my professionalism, I still felt, especially in those moments in the bunkers of that foreign world, helpless, like a newly born pup. I sought guidance at the place where I felt most at home, and that was in the Institute of Xenobiology and Medicine on my home planet. I remember I walked solemnly to those gates, through which a long time ago I exited, filled with hope and happiness, a feeling of great accomplishment. Yet here I am today, once again entering, a complete contrast. I entered the Institute, walking through the halls which I remembered so vividly, full of color, now only empty. Dull and sterile white and grey greeted me. How blind I was to reality back then, as if a filter had been lifted from my eyes. I walked up to an office of a professor, which I knew well. In front of the office, a neon blue light read, Office of Professor Yitran Kalan, in Galactic Standard, and my native language. I knocked. I heard an unfamiliar voice reply from the other side, Come in! I opened the door but I wasn't greeted by the light brown furred professor, but a pale pinkish figure with white fur only on top of its head and on its face. Oh, I apologize. I must have been mistaken. Now leave, I said as I turned to close the door. Are you perhaps looking for Professor Yatran? The person said, standing up from its chair. I stopped before looking back and said, Yes, yes I am. At that moment, I took a better look at the person in the office. I recalled working with a similar race before. I've also studied that race before. A human. I know, I know, it's quite rare to see someone other than your own in a place of high learning. Especially here on your own planet, the human said with a chuckle. I am on an exchange program if you're curious. Professor Yatran will be back in around a week, give or take. I can leave a message if you like, the human continued. I thought for a few moments before replying. You are a professor of medicine, I assume. Why, yes, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't. The human sat back down and looked at me for a few moments. Oh, God, excuse my manners. I am Professor Rotlieb, 
Kenneth Rotley. He extended his hand. I stood in silence for a moment before recalling that this is a human greeting. I took a few steps forward and extended my hand in earnest, shaking it. Matran Falan, it is a pleasure to meet you, I said. Likewise, the professor said, then continued. Are you a student here, or, uh, I, uh, I don't recall seeing you before. I was a student here. I studied xenobiology here, earning a doctorate. I served as a combat medic. I, uh, just returned from duty, I said, looking to the side. The human's brows raised. Have a seat, please, he asked. I obliged and sat down across from him in the comfortable chair. I know Professor Yatran well. He told me he had many students come to him not only for his expertise in the field of study, but also for some life advice, Professor Rotlieb said, having leaned his back onto his chair. I, uh, you then know why I'm here. I'm sorry. I don't want to bother you, I said, preparing myself to stand up. But the professor gestured me to stay. Stay, Matran. Or should I say Dr. Matran? I know very well why you are here, because I was in the same position as you when I was younger. I studied in the same field as you, xenobiology, before I felt the obligation to save my fellow humans and others from the madness of war, he said, looking into my eyes. I could see it inside of them. He saw the same thing. He saw worse. Much, much worse even. I sat back down. My head lay low into my lap. Let me hear it. Tell me everything, he said. I sighed heavily before starting to recount my experiences before, during, and after the peacekeeping mission. As I spoke, I could see the professor listening intently, hanging on every word I uttered. And, uh, so I came here, looking for advice, for guidance. Because, uh... I feel like a failure. The professor stared, probably thinking of an answer before replying. My story will do you no good, I know that. Because I felt the same way in those tired times. I don't know whether or not you are familiar with human history. I shook my head. I knew some things, but I wouldn't say that I was informed. I knew the gist. In short, it was brutal, he said, before sighing and starting to recount the history of mankind and its struggles with death and war. 1099 AD, Jerusalem. Physician! I pulled out of my stupor. My hands were smeared in red, and my face filled with the sweat both from stress and the immense heat from the underground cavern where the wounded were plowed. Yes, I shot back, getting back to my feet and rushing towards the voice. It was hard to tell from the moaning and screams, both from inside and outside, but I finally managed to find two men going down the stone steps. One of the soldiers had an arrow stuck in his neck. Lay him down here, now, I yelled, and pointed at a free spot in the ground. The warrior clad in chainmail whined and moaned. I carefully started to undress his headgear. The moment it left his head, blood started to flow. I retrieved a knife from my person and cut the arrow shaft as far as the neck as I could. You! I shouted to a young squire next to me. He was shaking. Honey and wax, now! He nodded and ran. I looked at the wound. Blood was coming out like a river. Can, can, can you save my brother? The warrior who brought him in told me. I looked at him. I'll do my best. Soon the young boy came back with a jar of honey and a handful of wax. I quickly opened it and had a quick taste to confirm. I grabbed the wax. After that, I scooped a handful of honey and applied it to the wound. 
After that, I applied some wax in hopes that it would stop the bleeding. I turned back to the brother of the wounded warrior. Hold it, and do not let it go. I got up. I had other men that I had to tend to. Time passed. After what felt like ages, I returned to the wounded warrior and his brother. He was still diligently holding the wound with all of his might. But I could see from afar, he was dead. I could see the tears form in the young man as he held the wound. He was a junior, no more than sixteen. I crossed myself, hoping that God may have mercy on his soul. Wax, honey, no, not that. November 2nd, 1914. Ypres, Belgium. Over the top! And that whistle, I could only imagine the apprehension the soldiers felt. But their job was to follow orders, and follow the orders they did. Working at a field hospital was as much a hell as it was in the trenches themselves. Every single day, hundreds came in. Injuries varied from gunshot wounds, shrapnel wounds, dismemberment, disease was also prevalent. There was a slight moment of calm. I could hear the artillery in the distance. But I took that ever so slight reprieve from my job to recuperate my energy. That calm never lasted long. I heard shouts and yells outside. You match, I'll prepare the beds. A nurse said to another. They got to their job. Space was thin as it was. As for myself, I prepared myself for the worst. I was a surgeon after all. The door was opened and the wounded were quickly brought inside. And almost immediately, I was called upon. Surgeon! A young man was on a stretcher. He was moaning, his skin pale and his eyes wide and bloodshot. His right leg was completely shredded from the knee down. His right hand bloody and limp. A fellow surgeon, an older gentleman with much more experience than myself, stepped in, inspecting the soldier. He simply shook his lips. I saw his lips move. I couldn't hear him, but I could tell what he had said. He's already dead. I quickly stepped in. Dr. Higgins, I'll take this one, I said to him. He looked at me. Son, I can't tell. I'll do everything I can to save the man, I said with conviction. Nurse, instruments. Minutes later, I was ready to begin the operation. I had to be quick. We tore the man's uniform. His arm was littered with shrapnel. And his leg had to be amputated and disinfected as quickly as possible. The arm was going to be a problem as well. I gave the soldier a soft pad and bite down on when he applied the alcohol for disinfection. He did little to alleviate the pain. He screamed and thrashed with the remaining limbs he could move. Two more nurses had to hold him down. Then the song. We couldn't bring him to the guillotine. We had to do it right here and now. I put the saw just below his knee and began the amputation. I saw it as quickly as humanly possible. The man's blood-curdling screams pierced through the building, tears running down his face, his face once pale now red from the force he put down on the pad. In a matter of seconds, I managed to amputate his leg. We had to stop the bleeding. Even if we did, infection was highly likely. The wounds were dirty despite the use of alcohol for disinfection. After fighting for minutes on end with the bleeding, there was no coming back from this. Too much chaos, too much stress. I gave everything I have, but I couldn't do anything. The man lay upon the table, pale, without a pulse. Dead. But damn, they tried, Rotlieb continued. We had those who strive to find immortality, like your people. But they always achieve little to nothing. Only through sheer willpower and desperation did we find ways of combating death 
The professor looked down at the table, as if pondering what to say next. Listen. Hundreds of years ago, my ancestors, much like your own, were helpless when in the hands of death and injury. But both mankind and your kind, I'm sure, learn through difficulty, through necessity. A man of medicine doesn't quit when he loses a patient. He finds his mistake and corrects them. So the next one might not suffer the same fate as the previous one. They sacrifice in the name of science one life for what might be dozens, hundreds, if not thousands. In the madness of war, there is no one at fault but those who issued the orders. So, next time when you question yourself, remember, you are saving the lives of soldiers who are not there of their own choice, but who are thrown into pits of hell for no reason. Especially in this era we live in today, an era of abundance. So remember the men who have died here, do not let their deaths be in vain, because everything you know and have learned has its foundation upon a mountain of bodies. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1831 The Human Psyche is Lethal Written by Balkoth661 Officer Glothorn sat down at the table in the interrogation room. On the other side of the table sat a human, a relatively new species to the Galactic Society. Until recently, only diplomatic missions had left their space. With the signing of the recent trade deal, however, Regular humans were now occasionally seen, especially around spaceports. It was only a matter of time before one of them got into some kind of trouble. Unfortunately for Glorthorpe, it appeared that he had caught the first case. So, uh, I believe your name is Mike Thurlison. Is that correct? he asked, after turning on the translator and recording apparatus fixed to the table. Yes. Just to confirm for a second, you are originally from the Lunar 6 colony in the Sol system, here on business as part of a crew of a trading vessel making bank. The human nodded. Please confirm verbally for the recording apparatus. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Thurlison. Do you know why you are here? Yeah. It's about the fight at Grievous. It is, Mr. Thurlison. Would you care to explain what happened in your own words? We were having a drink to celebrate closing a deal with the Major Corp. This would be the Antilla Corporation, yes? Interrupted Glorthorpe. Yeah, that's him. Anyway, we were having a drink to celebrate when the spug-looking guys walked up to us and he says something like, Your kind aren't welcome here. This would be Mr. Dietje, of Vorlex, yes? Didn't know that was his name, but yeah, he was a Vorlex, Mike continued. Anyway... We all look at him and ask what he means. I mean, we picked Grebos because it was the closest bar to our landing pad and served human-compatible drinks. He tells us that soft skins like us aren't welcome. It's about this point that we notice that there's another six or seven Vorlex coming through the crowd to back him up. So we all look at each other and, uh, Dave, our purser, says, Okay, we'll finish up our drinks and go. There's no need for any fuss. So an attempt was made to de-escalate the situation, Glorthorpe asked, making a note on his pad. Yeah, look, we're merchant spaces, we're not marines. We try to avoid trouble. It's generally bad for business, Mike stated. Understood, Mr. Thurlison. Please continue. You had just described your purse's alpha to leave once you had finished your drinks. Yeah, so, uh, 
The first Rolex uh, looks up at Dave and says, No, you're leaving now. Then he tries to grab Dave's shipsuit collar. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but humans are about twice as heavy, size for size as most sapiens. We're heavy wilders. Glorthorpe nodded and gestured to continue. That information had indeed been in the short information packet, which was all the prep he had had time for, before this interview. So the Vorlex tries to lift Dave, but it doesn't work. He strains, uh, and Dave doesn't budge. It was kind of funny to watch. Then Simon goes and snorts, trying to keep from laughing. Mike stops for a moment, slaps his hand over his face and sighs. Fucking greeny! It's his first cruise, and he hasn't quite learned yet how to calm situations like that down. Anyway, all seven or eight of these Vorlex look like they took offense to that. Especially the first one. I'm guessing he was the boss. And, uh, didn't like the loss of rep that he would get from someone laughing at him like that. So, uh, he pulls a blade. Crawthorpe looks up and furiously scribbling notes on his pad. He definitely had a weapon, he asks. Yeah, it looked like a knife. Blade looked about 15 centimeters long. Slightly curved, a bit of a reverse hook on the end. Crawthorpe quickly looked up for the measurement conversion, then pulled out an image on his pad. He showed the image to Mike. Did it look like this? Yeah, uh, that, that's what it looked like. Let the record show that Mr. Thurlinson identified the weapon in question as a Volexian Cheska blade. He said for the benefit of the recording device. Please continue, Mr. Thurlison. Okay. So we didn't want any trouble. But once blades came out, it means someone is serious about hurting or kidding. At that point, you need to end the fight fast. So we all looked at each other, then we jumped him. Dave took down the guy with the knife and straight lunged to the torso, then broke the guy's arm over his shoulder so that he dropped the knife. After that, it was just a melee. Gets a bit confusing. Up till the part where security team came in and zapped us all with shock batons. Don't really remember clearly what happened with the rest of the fight. Glithorpe finished making his notes, then looked Mike in the eyes. So you are claiming that it was preemptive self-defense, that you all acted as you did to protect yourselves from the threat posed by the blade. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Very well, Mr. Thurlison. Your testimony matches with the rest of your crew's. Unfortunately, Mr. Teacher and his associates tell a rather different story. They claim that you and your crew mates were aggressive and threatening, and when they politely asked you to leave, you attacked. Unfortunately, the visual recording device at Grievous seemed to have suffered a malfunction. This isn't the first time that they had that issue, but it means that we don't have anything to corroborate either side's claims. That's just peachy. So it's our word against theirs, and I'm willing to bet that the other customers are backing them up. Undoubtedly they would, if we were willing to use their testimony. However, it is well known that they are all associated with Mr. Dietje, in one way or another. This leaves us with only one way to resolve the situation, a psychic probe. Would you be willing to submit to this, in order to prove your claims? Mike frowned, looking uncertain. Is it safe? Of course it is, Mr. Thurlison. It is a widely used technique. You will be at no risk. Nah, it's not me. I can't remember, but I think there was something about the briefing packet about you guys out there reacting badly to psychic contact with humans. Something about our brains attacking you. Mr. Thurlison, I'm a class 5 adept, I assure you. There is nothing your untrained mind can do to mine. Class 5 is the second highest adept rating available. 
The procedure will be perfectly safe. Mike frowned at the table for a bit longer, thinking. If you're sure, man, as long as it's safe. Very well, then. Bluthorpe put his pant aside and reached out with his fine manipulator arms to place a manipulator on either side of Mr. Thurlison's head. Close your eyes and think about the events that grieve us. I will do the rest. As Mike followed his instructions, Glothorpe took a breath and began. From the outside, nothing happened for a couple of seconds. Then Glothorpe convulsed, throwing himself back in his chair, which toppled over. He landed on the floor and continued to convulse. Mike stood and ran around the table, falling to his knees beside the officer. Help! Someone get in here and help! The screen turned to black, and Instructor Dreamore turned to the class. This recording is shown to every graduating class of enforcement officers across the Galactic Society. This is done as a warning. If you encounter a human in the course of your duties, under no circumstances should you initiate any form of psychic contact. As you have seen, even a level 5 adept barely survived such contact with an individual human regarded as mentally healthy. Most human criminals suffer from some form of mental health issue, as do most criminals generally. This makes the issue worse. Another other class raised the manipulator. Yes, cadet. Instructor, what caused Officer Glothorpe's seizure? Do humans have some kind of innate psychic shielding? No, they do not. Their psychic abilities are purely offensive, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, given their sheer potency of their abilities. They are entirely focused inwards. Human minds are constantly undergoing psychic attack, and not just any psychic attack. It is the strongest known psychic attack ability in the galaxy. If you make psychic contact with the human mind, you will also be caught in the effects. The less well-adjusted the individual human, the stronger the attack. Humans with mental health issues have been known to kill level 6 adepts instantly on psychic contact. No known shielding method is sufficient to protect you. We give this warning to every class, and in every class there is some idiot that thinks, I'll be fine. They aren't, and every year at least one family loses a loved one because they thought that they could handle psychic contact with a human. Don't be that guy. Record excerpt from Enforcement Officer Training, Job Hazards 101, Graduating Class 5E357. Of this class, Officer Needup and Bleeron were lost to psychic contact with humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1832 Evening on the Porch, written by Rugi 2001 How old are you, Aaron? Twenty-one this year. Why? Peregrine shrugged, taking a sip of the beer. Is that a lot for your species? Meh. I'm not a kid anymore. I see. The cicadas sang as the two sat in the hot summer evening. The old porch squeaked with every little motion under the weathered white paint. Now and then, a fresh breeze came through the woods, relieving both of the human and the Athunan from the heat. I like beer, said Pierigree. Glad to hear it. It's good. Aaron scoffed raising the bottle to his lips. No shit, Sherlock. As stars gradually appeared in the sky, the first moon, Luna, rose over the horizon. 
The view of the Milky Way was as beautiful as ever at the ranch, where nothing could hide their shine. Who is this Sherlock you sometimes mention? You'd like to know, don't you? Yes, that's why I asked you about it. Our inside Eddie's friend's lack of humor. Sarcasm appeared to be a human thing in the galaxy. He placed a half-empty bottle down and leaned backward, propping up with his elbows. It's an old fictional character, a detective whose perk was the ability to deduce almost anything from seamlessly useless shit. He was created in the 19th century, if I remember correctly. Albert Cannon Doyle wrote him. Peregrine looked at him for a moment. His tail flicked against the wooden planks. Was the 19th century a long time ago? Yes. How distant? Aaron tilted his head. What? How long ago was it? He rephrased. The young man started counting in his mind, his fingers tapping against the swelled wood as he mulled over the question. The old oak in the backyard rustled in the wind. The 19th century started 777 years ago, Earth calendar, and lasted a hundred years. How long is a human year? A day here lasts 27 hours. A day on Earth is 24, which means that if you split the day into 27 parts and take... He shook his head. He pointed to his phone and opened up the clock app. Every tick of this lancet is a second, and a full circle is a minute, 60 seconds. Sixty minutes is in an hour, twenty-four hours is in an Earth day, three hundred and sixty-five days in an Earth year. Also, every four years we add a day, a century. Why? Uh, something to do with the odd hours in our planet's rotation. A century is a hundred years. While his friend did the math, counting on his four fingers, Aaron put his phone away and gazed at the stars, resuming his bottle of beer. The second moon, Selene had risen behind the tree's foliage, following Luna's path in the sky. That's, uh, not much. Aaron raised a single brow. What isn't? All of that. A century. Seven centuries. Seven hundred and seventy-seven years. It's just, uh, not much. For the universe, maybe. Seven hundred years is more than half a millennium. In the nineteenth century, we didn't even have flight. Dolthanon turned around his lanky figure an odd fit in the human porch. Then how did you get here? Naren looked at his friend. Even sitting on the decking, Eregri was nearly eye-level with someone standing. What? How did you get here? The Athunan repeated, twitching his ear. He was adorable doing so. He looked like a cat, which was the reason he was trying to lose the habit. Humans would pet anything they found cute even if bigger and older than them. The singing of the cicadas became the only sound between the two as Aaron tried to understand what these alien friend meant. A gust of wind carried over, bringing the scent of rain. Here as in, here as in on this planet, I, uh, was born here? Peregrine pinched the bridge of his nose, half as long as a human's, closing his eyes. I'm serious, how did your species get you? I'm, you lost me. With a spaceship? The blue alien groaned. No, I don't mean like how technically. On whose spaceship, Owls? Please answer me. Aaron stopped him, uncertainly giving away to the question. Why, are you saying that it's not possible for humans to reach a planet on their own? You said it. You said that you started developing flight after... Uh, 
that you didn't have flight technology yet in the 19th century. So? So, Aaron, stop circling me around, I mean, uh... The human chuckled as his alien friend used the figure of speech which did not translate, and raised a hand to stop him. Puritry was still new to this human race. He had arrived just a few months earlier. His English was still clunky. I'm not kidding you. I'm lost. I don't get what you're confused about. I'm saying that if 700 years ago you didn't have flight technology, how come you now have FTL ships? Aaron tilted his head. He cleared his throat, still lost, but tried answering by repeating what he remembered from history class. We developed flight technology in the 20th century, and by the end of the 21st we perfected sublight space travel, colonizing Mars and Venus. By the end of the 23rd century, we organized our first interstellar trip on generational ships. Sixty years ago, in the 25th century, we finally achieved FTL with the black hole curvature engines. And now we move through the stars exactly like you. Puritry looked at him dead in the eyes without blinking, his mind gears grinding somewhere, then spent a full minute counting numbers while his lips moved without speaking. He looked like a statue. The yellow light from the kitchen window reflecting on his blue, striped fur with a greenish shimmer. Finally, the switch clicked. He smirked. You're kidding me. What? No. Won't even be the joke here. The human laughed, surprised. Maybe his friend had not got what a sentry was. He took out his phone and opened the clock again. It's too short. Your species couldn't possibly reach this technological growth that fast repeated the Azenon after hearing the explanation a second time. What do you mean by so fast? It's been seven centuries. That's enough time to, uh, to let an empire die. Aaron stopped. A good joke is a short joke. Aaron looked him dead in the eyes and said, I'm not joking. From the first half of the 20th century to the first half of the 25th century, five centuries is all the time it took for us to go from pre-flight to FDL. And we did it alone. Pirigri seemed puzzled, his spear forgotten on the side. My, how long did it take you? Aaron wasn't exactly a cultured man. For his short life, he had received a basic education before starting work at the ranch at 16. He had a knack for boxing, but wasn't good enough to join the regional bouts there on Pluraluna 2. And the few things he knew about space travel were from his dream of leaving the planet and traveling the cosmos. It wasn't the first time he was ignorant of Athenons, beyond the little bits of culture he had been exposed to over the years. The biological fact that they crapped some of the most acidic things in the universe, as taught by the melted chemical toilet of summer 2515, where grass still refused to grow. And some words in their language, Aaron didn't know squat about them, even more so about their history. He didn't know jack about that. In human years, uh, we went from pre-flight to FTL in, uh, 2,500 years, give or take. Aaron didn't know whether it was a long time or not. It was a lot more than the humans, but the universe is a large place. Others were bound to have different timings. That's, uh, a bit, bit long, he still replied. He wondered how ancient Athwan history had to be if he remembered that they had gone FTL long before Gutenberg could even think about the print. Can't blame us. Everything is, compared to humans. What do you mean? You're are faster than everyone else in the galaxy. Not just your biology, your society as a whole. Our biology? 
You mean like, uh, in bed? Hergree burst into a low, hoarse sound, which was his laughter. His tail sweeping the floor. <laughs> no, I don't mean the bed. From what I could see, you got a stamina to spare. Sarah's not gonna leave you, don't worry, he winked. I mean, in your time. You turned into an adult in barely two decades. It's about just five years on Plural Luna. Well, uh, Leah here is four on Earth, so it's a bit... What I mean, the Orthanon, cut him off, over the flick of his wrist, is that your species as a whole seems to have a taste for speed. It's imprinted on you. How long did it take you to reach adulthood? Aaron had known his friend for just a month and a half, since when he had taken up work in the ranch, partially due to the different biology, partially because he didn't really care. He'd never questioned his friend's age past the superficial, always somewhat peers level, seeing how they apparently had somewhat the same mental age. Forty-five human years! The young man stopped in surprise. The bottle raised mid-air. He wondered if his best friend was a middle-aged man. He shook off the idea. Different biologies meant different life cycles. That's, um, long, he commented. Compared to humans, and that's still over. The astronaut stopped. He gazed fixated on the oak while his lips mimed alien words. Wait, Aaron. I've seen photos with you and Sarah dating back to last summer. So, the young man said tentatively. Yet you say you became an adult this year? Yes. For my species, adulthood has reached upon sexual maturity. What is uh, adulthood for you? Aaron grabbed a new brew, opened it with the pit of his elbow, and took a long sip. The question was tricky. Adulthood is the age by which we are legally allowed to vote and drink alcohol, and is reached at our 21st birthday. We reach full sexual maturity around the same period between 18 and 20 years old. Peregrine turned around and raised an eyebrow, slowly sipping his beverage. Fool! Technically speaking, we start being sexually active around 11 and 13 years old. It's the same age we start changing. Full maturity is when our bodies stop doing that, and we turn into adults. In between is adolescence. That's, uh, he murmured without completing his thought, lowering his bottle. His long ears twitched. Aaron nodded. Fascinating, yes. Also, the reason we take this long is because our brain is actually way more complicated than any other species from Earth. This is long for you, he interjected, his poker face gradually fading into more he heard about the human's biology. Most of the animals from there reach adulthood in the first year of life, shrugged the young man, returning his gaze to the stars. If there was one thing he thanked Sarah for, it was the documentaries she made him watch. Ever since, he had started to really digging into them. For example, horses. The ones we have in the stables start walking within half an hour of their birth, he added. Then the realization hit him. Wait, you're telling me you reached sexual maturity in 50 years old? 45? You are incredibly rapid. No wonder your species was so fast. Are you sure it's not your species that slow? I mean, uh... You are like the elves from Lord of the Rings. It must be so interesting. It's a great book. I have a copy if you'd like. No, not that, you idiot. Peregrine clicked his tongue with a smile. I was talking about, uh, if you think about it, even the most basic flight technology is incredible. The technological success, bored from an impossible dream, and a long trial and error. He said, looking at the stars. 
In the evening when they sat together, like that after a long day of work, he often started talking about such things, like the beauty of technology or the greatness of the universe. What a poet, Aaron teased him. I once encountered a great elder who was from the time before flight, and he had such wisdom to share. But if your people change so rapidly, it means you must have even more stories to tell. The Athunan ignored him. Wait, you met someone from before your flight era? What do you mean? Someone who was born before my people invented our first flight technology. Sure, they're quite rare among us, but for you it must be a whole different thing. He smiled with a shrug. That humans could be a species of great and fast change and even greater wisdom had never really occurred to Pirigree. A whole new civilization of people who were quicker than everyone, under every point of view, was simply too much. He had lived among them for the past few months, and yet he had already seen many changes in their technology. Like their new improved global connected network, given another century, how much would they accomplish? The air alone made him quiver. What are you talking about? How? Well, I was on a trip over to Magrod, our home planet, and there I found a small restaurant on the road to a mountain refuge. And after a bit of chatting, I discovered the owner was actually a great elder. Man, it was awesome. He was one of the wisest beings I have ever met. I'd like to take you there someday. You'll love it, he said, his eyes shining with glee at the memory. But, uh, how? Shouldn't he be dead? Peregrine turned around with a gasp, a shocked expression on his face. That's horrible, Aaron. What? The stars? No, no, not, not in that sense. I mean, well... You know, Aaron started, searching for the right words. The alcohol and the fatigue didn't help him. You told me that you took over 2,000 years to go from pre-flight to FDL. And why the star should a great elder die for that reason? And that you became FTL a thousand years ago. 1,200, muttered the lanky alien, crossing his arms. So, why is he still alive? Aaron, stop. It's not funny and really offensive. The human looked at his friend, whose short fur was now standing on edge in rage. He reminded him of a jellyfish for some reason, like the ones he had seen in the documentary Sarah had forced him to watch some days before. Ever since they started dating, he had learned more with her than when he did in school. Her dream was to be a researcher, and she often talked about the tea nutricolor. A small kind of jellyfish could be the key to lengthening their lifespans, seeing as it did not age or something like that. She often talked about many species across the galaxy who did not age. Harry, uh, how long does your species live? What do you mean? Aaron lowered his beer and took a deep breath as realization came to him. Without being killed or dying in accidents, how long does a healthy Asnon live? What's with the weird question? Please, answer me. It's important. Well, uh, we, uh, forever, duh. Uh, don't change the subject. What you said was messed up. You don't joke about death of an elder, ever, even more so. Harry, we don't. His friend stopped arguing and looked at him. Only a twitch of the ear betrayed a sudden confusion with his anger. You don't what? We don't live forever. We die of old age. The Athenon stayed so silent that Aaron's brain almost registered him as inanimate. A single shooting star crossed the horizon, scratching from the firmament for an instant. What? We die of old age. Peregrine stared at him, 
those deep green eyes of his still as marbles, searching for any sign that it was a lie, hoping for something, a small gesture, a tick, anything, that would expose Aaron's twisted sense of humor, struck yet again. That his joke had got the alien for good, and now he could drop the act. Yet Aaron's face remained unchanged. He was telling the truth. There was no fear, no anger or envy in his voice. Not a droplet of bitterness, not even the resignation of criminal sentence to death. For him, it was just a summer evening on the porch. His face was relaxed, satisfied, one could say, if not for the distress brought by the conversation. He smiled, a gentle smile, that put Peregrine off. How long? The buzz of the cicadas covered the wind. A sentry at most. The world stopped making sense to the Athenon, as if some untold law had just been broken. Humans were little more than flicks of light in the night. A lighter's small flame made to last a few seconds. In less than a century, the one in front of him would be lost to the flows of time. And it wasn't a disease or an accident. There was no cure, no prevention. Death would come to him, punctual and inevitable. Aaron would die, and Sarah would die. They would grow old and wither under the flow of time, like fruit flies, while Peregrine would observe from the sideway, external spectator to their laws of existence, free from the oppression of death shackling them. He would watch, powerless, as the others marched to their end. Ultimately, he'd be the only one left. Piri would survive Aaron, and everyone else after him. End of story. Tales from Our Space 1833 Story number one. When humanity developed FTL, the specifics of the drive meant that each ship needed to be the size of Manhattan, and built like an anti-nuke bunker to survive a trip, not to mention using power to fry a continent. This was shocking to Aiden more used to gentler, subtler means of travel. Written by Bonto Sol. The Talamani people were not alone in the universe. At first, it was just a whisper of radio signals. Too regular to ignore, but too brief to really place credence in. Then came another, then another, then a constant stream. Once the scientists realized there was more than a fluke, it took all of two seconds to point the hypercom generator at the planet of origin and send a signal. As ecstatic as the Talamani had been to receive even a distant hints of intelligent life off of their own small blue moon, they were even more so to receive a return hypercom signal. At first, it was nothing but unintelligible hash. The signal format was too different to read. There was intelligence behind the signal but no sure meaning. So they started from the ground up, with a short burst of mathematical sequences. They got the completed set, with another from the other people for them to complete. Within a single day, it was solved and sent, winging across the void with another set of Talamani designs, more complex than the last. For dozens of revolutions, the scientists of two worlds labored so that they may one day talk in more simple numbers, and notation. They failed, 
Every attempt to bridge the gap in cognition between the two people was spoiled by some twist. Images were too complex, the computer unable to comprehend the radically different architecture of the others. Words were utterly unintelligible. Letters were images, after all. Pictograms couldn't be deciphered, and even if they could, there would be no guarantee of a common frame of reference. The common interactions of the universe, gravity, electromagnetism, radioactivity, could be used, perhaps as metaphors. But there was no sure way to know if the others had interpreted it properly. But as always, both people had numbers, maths, and the concept of space. Everything needed to mark a place and a time. It took a few revolutions, but eventually the Talamani managed to impress upon the others a desire to send a meeting in a certain place at a certain time. Or, at least they thought they did. They could not be sure. They would send the ship anyways. If the messages had not been interpreted, they would be fine. There would be no loss, and both peoples would simply resume their attempts to translate each other's messages. If the others did send a representative, though, the reward would be immeasurable. A whole new civilization with new science, new perspective, and maybe, as some dread to hope, other contacts amongst the stars. Real space transition in three, two, one. The bridge windows clear into a bright starscape as the diplomatic cruiser Sidar slides into position with barely a whisper of wasted radiation. Status report, Captain Clarix calls over the whine of deployment radiators as the Sidar began dumping the waste heat it had accumulated over the long slipspace journey. All departments report nominal functioning on the ship. Engineering clears for maneuvering, calls out Nekomre. The internal officer. Slip space eddies indicate that we have arrived 84 ticks ahead of indicated time, the navigation officer said. Hold position, internal, ensure that diplomatic team is ready for contact. Tarix's wings shuffled and the crest feathers flash in a happy orange as he briefly contemplates being the officer presiding over the first meeting between two completely separate intelligent species. Diplomatic team reports full readiness, all members... The science external officer cuts off an internal officer's report. Energy surge bearing 448 by 673. Gamma radiation. Raise shields. Any chance this can be an anomaly? Clarick snaps as he snaps himself out of his fantasies of first contact. His ship was in danger. This was in no place for something like that. Scans indicate no proximity anomalies. Shields raised. Clarix watches as a shimmering film of blue energy slides over the silo. Sparking as it shunts aside the gamma energy, glowing brighter as the energy surges even higher. Radiation alarms begin to wail as the energy worms its way through the shields, battering the fragile hull of the silo. Energy increases plateauing, shields are keeping radiation below lethal. Contact! The external combat officer this time. Bearing 488 by 673. Large contact! One window snaps to display the ship that had just appeared in what was an incomprehensible maelstrom of energy. Clarix can't prevent a small gasp from escaping its peak. An immense iron construct, vaguely seed-shaped, floats passively inside a deadly vortex of radiation. Readouts and overlays blink into existence around it, giving it scale. It's the size of a small iron, 
No nearly solid armor. It's a warship. Radiation decreasing, returning to safe levels. The external officer calls out, but Clarix is barely listening. Have we been so naive? Were we so eager to converse with some other soul in the universe that we overlooked something? Did we offend them? Contact is not maneuvering. Radiation is decreasing to baseline. Communication is now possible. We may have just doomed everyone. If this is how they build warships, we have no chance of standing against them. Captain! Captain! The internal officer shakes him out of his reverie. Yes, officer. Diplomatic team is reporting readiness. They are, uh, eager, sir. Did none of them see it? Contact is sending a signal. This is it. The final threats. Only it wasn't. It was nothing more than an enthalpy equation describing the formation of sodium chloride. An incomplete one. Today, want a response? Why the song and dance of sending a warship by not attacking us immediately? Captain, do you want to send a response? What if it's not a warship? They came in a massive flash of radiation. That level of armor could certainly be unnecessary to withstand that. Captain, no. Yes. Clarix contemplates the decision for only a moment. They were not making any hostile moves, and nothing existed to be gained by fleeing. Send the complete signal. Contact the diplomatic team. Initiate contact. If I'm wrong, their blood will be on my hand. Ambassador Kukala floats in freefall, halfway between the fast iron construct and the other ship and his own comparatively tiny ship, trying to keep his thrilling heart in check. The being before him is strikingly similar to his own. One head, albeit a round one. The helmet of the figure made no allowances for a beak. Two arms ending in five blunt fingers instead of four clawed ones. Two legs with similarly structured boots. No wings at all. It's dressed in a white reflective suit with some sort of sleek pack on its back, which occasionally emits a white burst of gas to keep it centered. Much the same as his own EVA pack. Hesitantly, also it seems, it raises one of its arms, extending all five of its fingers. The pack on its back pulses to compensate the sequence to compensate for the motion. Hesitantly, Kukala raises his own, reaching out and not quite touching. Whatever being was in the other suit seemed to come to a decision, reaching out further. But it still seems hesitant as its hand hovers over his... Aquila is actually aware of every single camera of the Silo pointing at him, acutely aware of his eyes on the Tilamani people, counting on him not to screw up. They don't stop as he finally takes the last step, wrapping his own fingers around those of the other person. First contact. For real, this time. End of story. Story number two. Brothers in Arms, written by Bonto Sol. The air tastes like burnt caramel. Naben takes another breath, beating the armor tight around his body. Compasses and plastics momentarily smoothing his fur and throwing the pony plates and ridges around his body into sharp relief as pores in his skin pull the air in from the pocket around his naked body. Then he exhales and the armor relaxes. Pockets expanded, armor closing tight. He can't see the planet turning below. 
but he knows he hadn't been there when the hazen had invaded hadn't been there when the factories burned and its mines collapsed but he was about to be there now the human walks by heavy hulky and broad he can't see past the visor to their face but he knows it well known it since faces just like it had pulled him from the burning rubble of his home soft and kind expressive and gentle no plates of bone covering them just soft skin and fine fur he remembers the rage then the looks on their faces as they had survived the wrecked city their low murmuring words said to each other contrast with the gentle voices they brought to him with their food and blankets there are thick heavy metal hides their figure he can't hear the machinery that underlies their second skin but he knows that it's there there's a stark contrast to his own a lithe construction of polymer and flexible composite plates the armored human steps onto the slot in the wall heavy clamps clunk as they hold him in place nape builds his own straps around his chest and legs the rest of his segment is strapped in too the comms are open but none of them say a word silence before a battle to allow a soldier to make their own peace with themselves a tradition that Nabon appreciates even more than the squad of humans and that dropship respected the launch countdown is in his face but he pays it no mind it would come when it would come and then it does the world lurches around as the dropship comes free for a time there's silence every now and again the whir and buzzes laser turrets find its mark but nothing else like the universe was giving them one last chance he can't see the world outside just a little bubble of steel and air and flesh and then it all comes at once the atmosphere breaks the vehicle and suddenly the chug 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 of the dropship's heavy auto cannon resounds through the cabin as it sweeps the air pounding anything larger than a bread box with predatory ferocity human weapons had that effect like they were constructions of channeled fury instead of steel and crystal he just focuses on his task finds his peace and his purpose the hazen were here burrowed into the depths of his stolen home he would not stand not if he and his brothers in arms could yet breathe a warning quickly dismissed a laser was digging at the bottom of the dropship hull searing into the heat shield he can imagine it glowing lurid red sloughing away as hazen's death stare pierced it it would destroy them all the humans artillery would reach it first two options neither in his control The alarm dies and despite himself Naven breathes a sigh There would be moments now moments before landfall The floor slams into his feet as he grunts at the sudden weight the roaring of the atmosphere streaking past his all of a sudden joined by the rumble of rocket thrusters as the dropship struggles to bleed velocity from their frantic descent The landing is still rough He can feel the strike through his armor, feel his bones flex from the impact. But he holds, holds through the pain as the straps come undone and a brief beat of silence rings. 
they were here, standing on the sacred soil of their wronged homeland. Already, his section was standing, arraying themselves neat and orderly, despite the muted roars of battle mere steps away. They'd learned that from the humans too. The human steps forward in a single line, the stomps of steel on steel resounding through the dropship's cabin as they form a barrier with their armored bodies, rifles raged. And then the door blows free. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1834 Walks of Life Written by Fissa946 the Serpentine Sucrass, within the jungle planet J37566, locally known as Jora, arrive into this world silent and shiny, bursting out of egg clutches in droves, slick with mucus, and their scales still soft. The mother Sucrass may reach a length of 14 feet, with most of the length provided by a long prehensile tail. However threatening she may be, however, Jorah is home to some of the most vicious predators on this side of the universe, and she must abandon her eggs so as to not allow her presence to draw any attention to them. She rejoins her family in the trees, and the nomadic tribe will wait with her for her eggs to hatch. Without a mother to God, egg clutches must be laid in caves and holes in order to hide the young from the prying eyes and hungry mouths. An indigenous mammal is subdued and paralyzed by the mother's venom for their offspring, and may have to lie waiting for days until the eggs hatch. Upon hatching, the younglings will instinctively huddle close to the body of the beast or wolf, but also to gather sustenance. As you may be familiar with, many species rely on the liquid diet in their first days, usually provided by a mother as a regurgitated food or milk. The Sictras, however, drink the blood of their prey upon being born. With still developing arms and prepubescent venom sacs, the young Sictras rely on their needle-like fangs to puncture the hide of the animal. However, once the wound has been made, all of the young will survive and greedily lick up the blood that they can. Their mother's venom causes the heart of the beast to beat in an extremely slow rate, so as to ensure that the young do not overeat or die. While the venom is non-poisonous to their own species, it is potent, and there is enough in the bloodstream to keep the beast paralyzed until it dies of blood loss. Once the first fading is over, the young Sictra will emit a high-frequency cry, nearly undetectable to most of the fauna that stalks the undergrowth. Upon hearing the cry, the mother will descend with only her mate to retrieve the offspring. While the males of the Sutra are much smaller than the females, he is able to serve as a lookout, and if necessary, sacrifice himself, so that the mother can ascend into the trees with the children, latched onto the hard scales of her back. At least, that was how it was in the wilds of their own planet. As a spacefaring race, they have long since abandoned the need for dirt holes and paralyzed beasts, instead opting for large hatcheries where the young are kept warm through the heated pods and fed a steady diet of blood supplied through tubes and provided by genetically modified blood beasts, designed and bred by the Sictras themselves. 
Their people are well known as mercenaries and pirates. Their speed and strength gifted to them through eons of evolution on their death. On my long journey to learn the ways of life, I had the opportunity to work in one hatchery. The young spent the first few days slithering around each other and are closely monitored. Hatchlings do not have the extravagant coloration of the adult members of their race and are instead pale shades of green and brown. Camouflage in the wilds, in case one were to become separated for the group. While they were mostly helpful, I still have a few scars from underestimating needle tips of their fangs. Even now, hundreds of hundreds of generations away from their wild ancestors, the instincts to latch onto and suck blood of a nearby mammal still rules them. In the wide open plains of planet P46595, oddly enough, this planet is unnamed by its inhabitants. There exists the largest land animals known the galaxy. Also, we thought at first, gargantuan masses of green fur and taut muscle. The Grihorums, as they are locally known, are not only animals, but a type of plant, who slowly lumber around the planet, constantly following the sun. The Grihorums ranged in size depending on their age. From the rolling sapling that could crush a small vehicle, to the ancient behemoths that could flatten a citadel with a careless movement. With sparse grass and permafrost, the planet did not serve a very hospitable environment. But these lumbering plants did, constantly moving to avoid the dark side of the planet. Their forests of fur, which in reality are leaves, provided the perfect environment for the evolution of an entire ecosystem relying entirely on the vast organisms. From the surface of these massive creatures came the Kithrit, an almost entirely airborne race of winged people. The adults are covered in glamorous blue feathers. Their massive wings easily span 13 to 40 feet, with the small prehensile feet dangling from their diminutive bodies and nearly flat faces. Flat teeth helped in grinding up the plant food provided by the Grehorom. The young are born feathers, with naught but a greenish leather skin. Birthing these young ones was one of the few activities that the Cathrits landed for. The mother would maneuver to the underbelly of the Gerharam, carefully clinging to the foliage with her prehensile feet and the vestigial claws on her wingtips. The fledgling Cathrits are born with more viable wingtip claws and use these to grip onto the belly grass of the Gerharam. The mother... Unable to fly with a litter of up to four, leaves him to eat the soft leaves of the Grohorom. She will return periodically to check up on them, but otherwise they would have to rely on camouflage in order to avoid being eaten by one of the Grohorom's many other passengers. Their space-age descendants are no longer reliant on the Grohorom, nor are any Grohorom left. The Kithrid never developed very advanced technology, but they are renowned throughout the galaxy today as some of the fastest thinkers and greatest minds. Their society stretched eons thanks to the timelessness of the Grohorom and their own ability to evade predators. This long listlessness allowed them to watch their son die and fade into a white dwarf. Unable to provide enough light, the Grohorom all but died out. It was only because of the efforts of a mixed group of researchers who had been observing their development, or lack thereof, that the Kithrits were uplifted. 
The original Cuthrits did not have possessions, but they did bring with them the dormant pods of the Grotherom seedlings, each weighing several tons, but integral to the Cuthrit peoples. Today, nearly all Cuthrit devote their lives in search of a world not unlike their own, one with open fields and plenty of sunlight, to wake the sleeping Grotherom. However, as a result of limited room available on spaceships, many Cuthrit grow up never having flown, and... It is not uncommon to see adult Cuthred with wings shriveled from disuse. It was on one such ship that I had the great pleasure of aiding in a birth. Cuthred pups come into this world with their eyes fused shut, but desperately clinging on to anything they can get a hold of. It is generally a quick process, and the mother is often able to deliver them by herself. I was present, simply to ensure that a brood were born healthy. After cleaning these leathery pups, they were gently coaxed onto hanging cribs of salts. Lengths of artificially grown vines are hung from the ceiling, which the Cuthred pups gladly latch onto with their claws, and begin eating the nourishing vegetation. These pups are generally quiet and do not require much attention from the mother. They are born into this world blind, but they spend the rest of their days looking for a new home. In all my travels, I have not met a more strange birth than that of a human child. I will admit, I do not know much about them, with them being only one of many species recently embraced into the galactic community. However, I will never forget the absolute insanity of their species. I was much younger, my body still able to support itself, though it was failing. I was waiting on a small planet with naught but a colony of humans and snabers. I had landed my pod not far off and set up shop there while I waited for my papers to go through, to upload my mind into the collective of my own species and join the elders. I made it known to them that I was as practiced as well-known medical professional and that they could come to me if they needed help. There was a lot of bearing of teeth and shaking of hands at this. Apparently, their old doctor had passed away a few cycles past, and their requests to their home world for a new doctor had been, for all intents and purposes, ignored. Oh man, you came in the nick of time. I'm Samuel, and you, my friend, are a sight for sore eyes. You see, my sweet Margaret is due to pop any day now, and no one on this rock knows nothing about delivering a baby. The wiry young man bared his teeth at me while he vigorously gripped my appendage with one manipulator and gesturing towards a severely bloated female close by. It looked as though she was going to burst. She replied to him in a strange tongue, which he translated back to me in galactic standard. Marge is wondering if you've ever delivered a baby before. Cause, um, cause you have, though, right? He inquired, his teeth still bared in what looked like a threat. <clears throat> ah, yes, yes. I've delivered plenty of human babies before. I've delivered them in all sorts of places, I insisted, out of fear. His incisors looked sharp, and I was unsure as to the temperament of these humans. The young man let out a sharp gust of air through his nose, and then translated what I said to the rest of the humans that had gathered to greet me. They weren't able to understand or speak galactic standard. All of the humans bared their teeth and began to quickly hyperventilate, though I later learned that this was their own twisted form of laughter. Yeah, right, Doc. If you like, I, we can set you up in an old doc's office. Beatrice is still around. She, uh, 
as kind of an assistant to the doctor. A nurse, uh, we call them. She might be able to help you out a bit, but I'm sure that someone like yourself won't need much help. As it turns out, Beatrice knew a lot about childbirth. Using a galactic standard handbook, she was able to communicate with me the basics of human childbirth over the course of a few days. But it made very clear that I was only there to help her. I didn't get my medical license so that I could play second fiddle to some xenoquack, as she put it. It was in the early hours of the morning that a young man came from the town to my ship, speaking rapidly in his own tongue. I went rigid with fear. If 152 centimeter pink bipedal came at you with small hours of the morning, speaking in a loud voice, you would have too. He froze for a moment, his face scrunching up in thought, before shouting in galactic static, Baby! Baby board! Baby! Somehow, through his thick accent and slaughtering of the words, I understood the message. I hurried to follow him out, but before I could mount my hub of scooter, he forcefully shoved me into the passenger seat of a large, rusty human vehicle. A pickup, I believe. Absurd. A vehicle designed to pick people up. Ha! We arrived at the old medical office, around which a mob of humans seemed to have gathered. I was quickly ushered through the old screen door, forced through the sterilizing airlock and into the operation room. There were four people there, including Beatrice, Samuel, and Margaret. An adult female, unknown to me, stood off to the side. Beatrice barked orders at her, while Samuel simply stood by Margaret, looking nervous, and holding one of his manipulators in both of his, and speaking to her softly in their human tongue. Hey, Doc, he turned and bared his teeth at me. I quickly went to Beatrice's side, ready to aid her. Margaret was looking less bloated than before, but on her face was an expression of extreme pain. She wore an ugly dress and lay on her back on the table where her legs were propped on a pair of metal stands. Beatrice knelt down between her legs and spoke commands to Margaret. I did not understand what was going on. I will be honest, I wasn't much help in the operating. While I tried to observe and learn as much as I could, as I had before, I spent most of the time in there cringing in horror and looking on a grisly scene with shock. At one point, I was roughly shoved aside so that they had more room to work. To put it shortly, human birthing is akin to torture, not just to the mother who was going through extreme pain to bring her child into this world, but to all of the people in the room. Margaret, who had seemed so timid when I first met her, devolved into an angry, screaming, and cursing demoness. Her face was red with pain, and she almost entirely ignored her mate's attempts to soothe her. The screaming nearly deafened my delicate ears, and I still have nightmares about it. But I could not muster the strength to open the airlock by myself, so I remained in that operating room for hours. The process was slow and grueling, and I was forced to watch the whole once the child is born, I'm going to be quiet. It'll be peaceful, I kept assuring myself, in order to hold on to my sanity. However, once the human offspring was born, it was a whole new screaming. While the mother had finally ended her screams of anguish, the bloody spawn of hers began screaming all on its own. Beatrice brutally severed something from the kicking and flailing child before handing the screaming blood spawn to the mother, who cooed and bared her teeth at the baby. Possibly to establish her own dominance? Who knows? The other humans surrounded the mother, who was still pink from strain and her face still covered in tears. Meanwhile, I huddled in the corner, 
also covered in tears. I was praying to the divines to whisk me away from this place when Samuel gestured me over. Come on, Doc. It's okay. Come meet the newest member of the colony. He turned to me, his eyes filled with joy, but his teeth bared in what could only have been a threat. He must have been angry with my incompetence, but I rushed over in fear. I was still trapped in the room with them, after all. Margaret held her child, mostly dried off now, but with bits of afterbirth on her skin. Even now, the child still screamed with all the rage and pain of a fallen soldier. Beatrice busied herself with the old medical scanner, checking the vitals of both the mother and infant. Meanwhile, Samuel placed his manipulator on my shoulder and turned towards me, baring his teeth. Then, turning back and baring his teeth at his screaming hellspawn and faint. Beatrice opened the airlock and invited everyone but Margaret and the child to leave and get some rest. And I left without so much as a goodbye. I don't remember much about the trip between that human colony and my ship. I left my harbor scooter behind in my hurry to leave. However, I will never forget the terrible scene. I am confronted by minds of Elder Collective now, but I can feel them cringe away from me when they encounter that memory. I shudder to imagine what kind of mad god would create such creatures that would come into this world kicking and screaming in such a manner. What insane evolutionary boiling pot would bring about younglings covered in blood and filled with anger? I may be an elder, but my sense of curiosity is still as strong as ever. Did you know that the bearing of one's teeth is considered a sign of happiness in humans? I didn't. Existing without a body makes learning a little more difficult now. I usually learn what I can from watching the news. Well, not really. Watch. Rather, it is streamed directly into the minds of the Elder Collective. And I am one of the few amongst us who chose to pay attention. As it turns out, humans have made a name for themselves, spreading far and wide through the cosmos. They preach peace and love, but in their ignorance assume that this message is reciprocated by the galactic neighbors. I know that some of the more empirical societies see them as easy targets. Even now, several species have begun mobilizing invasion forces to take from them soft pink bipeds everything they can. Though this news isn't drawing much attention, it's nothing new amongst the stars, as they say. But I know the truth. I've seen the madness. In the first moments of life, the most base nature of the species is revealed. Whether it was to embrace the life-giving Grahoram, or slink through the shadows to feast on the blood of the weak. Unfortunately for their enemies, humans are born into this realm kicking, screaming, and bathed in blood. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.